It's time to lock in. The most amazing, sensational, dramatic, exciting, thrilling finish. Live from Mobile, Sports Radio 105.5 WNSP presents 99 yards away. Win this game for one another. The final drive with Corey Labounty and Michael Bronner. Do your job and play together. The final drive. Live on 105.5 FM and streaming on the Sound of Mobile app. I cannot believe it! All right, welcome into a Friday edition of the Final Drive. Michael Brauner here. Corey Labounty is out sick today, so we hope Corey feels better. I'm sure he'll be back on Tuesday. We got a Memorial Day weekend coming up. Nice three-day weekend for Corey to recover and get back to us on Tuesday. Of course, we want to take your phone calls. Admittedly, I am running the board as well as uh, you know hosting the show today. So I'm going to do my best to take your phone calls. Can really only do that at breaks. But two five one six nine four one zero five five. If you want to get into the conversation, would love to hear from you. Got a great show for you today. Three thirty, we're going to hear from Bill Bender at the Sporting News. Talk a little college football. Four o'clock, we're going to have Roger Hoover, play-by-play for the Crimson Tide Sports Network. Talk a little Alabama baseball. Their big win over Auburn last night or yesterday afternoon. Their uh, their matchup against Vanderbilt tonight. SEC tournament in general. 4.30, we got Ross Jackson, Locked On Saints. Talk a little Saints OTAs. 5 o'clock, we'll have Ryan Phillips, Tuscaloosa Patch. Talk a little uh, Darius Miles hearing and uh, what's going on with that situation. 5.30, we're going to go ahead and replay. We had C.J. Mosley on yesterday. It was very last second. You know, C.J.'s mom got back to Corey yesterday. So big thanks to C.J.'s mother over at Theodore who helped set that up for us. And we're going to replay that for you guys at 5.30 in case you didn't get to hear it. It was really good stuff. So make sure you tune in at 5.30 and get another chance to hear that. As always, you can get that on WNSP Now wherever you get your podcast. Just search WNSP Now. But again, 251-694-1055. Give me a call at the end of a segment during a break. I'll do my best to get to you, and I'd love to hear from as many of you as possible today. So 251-694-1055. But I think the best place to start is in the NBA. The Celtics get it done last night. Again. It was 3-0. I mean, Corey and I were talking after it gets to 3-0, because game three in Miami was an utter disaster for Boston. It was a beatdown of epic proportions. It was pathetic. The Celtics looked pathetic. They coached pathetic. They looked like a team ready to roll over and die. I think both Corey and I predicted that this series is ending in four games. Why wouldn't you predict that? I mean, it just looked... I understand the Celtics are the more talented team, but they looked outcoached. They were outplayed. And they just, they just didn't look like they wanted to be there. They looked like a team ready to hit the golf course. And then they get it done in game four. They didn't really play a complete game in game four. They're down six at halftime and, and find a way to get it done. And they're leading after the third quarter. Heat cut it to five. And, and you think, oh, boy, here we go. Heat are about to come back and get it done. And uh, it's going to be yet another Heat comeback. Heat were like six and two in games in the playoffs that they had trailed by 10 or more points. It's just a ridiculous stat. But Jason Tatum is able to hit a three to make it eight for the first time in the fourth quarter all series. Kind of calm some things down and allow the Celtics to 
you know, win game four. They end up pulling away, winning by like 17 in game four. And then that means it's back to Boston for game five last night. And last night, I mean, we said yesterday the Celtics had yet to play a really complete fourth quarter, a complete game of four quarters in this series. Last night they did exactly that. Man. It was an utter domination from the start. They couldn't miss. It, it was it was unbelievable last night. And the, the first quarter they came out. It was kind of the first game Tatum and Brown both showed up. And they didn't really dominate. Neither Tatum or Brown did. And both of them had 21 points, but they didn't need to. You know, Marcus Smart had 23. Derek White stepped up and had 24. It was just really a complete game from a team that we haven't seen a complete game from since Game 7 against Philadelphia. And they're able to get it done. And... Now the pressure's on Miami. It, I mean, things have, things have very much changed in this series. It, it's not a situation where, all right, we're down 3-0, we're down 3-1, we're just going to leave it all out there and see what happens. It's, it's not that anymore. We have very much a series now. It is 3-2. Remember, no team has come back from down 3-0 to, to win the series in NBA history. 0-149. Heat are trying to make it 0-150, but... I mean, game six now in Miami, it's unfortunate that Memorial Day weekend, I'm very excited for the three-day weekend, but it's unfortunate that, but that Memorial Day weekend comes when it, it, when it has because now we're going to have, if there is a game seven necessary, we're not going to get to talk to you guys until after this series is over, even if it does go seven games because game seven would be Monday night in Boston. And if this series goes seven games, it's, it's over. My, the, game six in Miami now for the Heat, is essentially game seven. You can't lose. You you cannot lose game six and expect to go to Boston and win game seven. You just you just can't. The pressure is squarely on the Miami Heat now. We kind of said, you know, there was a lot of discussion after game four. It's like, all right, Joe Missoula kind of looked like a dead man walking, kind of looked like a guy who's about to get fired. And I said, what, they got to win two games in this series for me to change that tune? They did just that. So while I'm not very sold on Joe Missoula still, I, I got to give him props. I mean, they got it done. Let's hear from Joe Missoula. Is, is the cause to come back from this brought the guys together? I know it's a pretty obvious answer, but how has it and has it? I mean, I think it's just your back's against the wall. You don't have a choice. Um, and so it builds a connection and it builds, um, you know, just a, an opportunity. And so, like I've said it all year, the guys in that locker room, um, they always stick together. And, uh, you know, when our backs are against the wall, we just have to continue that. Backs against the wall didn't have a choice. I mean, that's, that's about the way to describe it. I don't know. I don't know. Someone, someone who studies this game from an analytical perspective has got to got to tell me how much of a difference coaching has made in these last two games. I, I mean, last night the Celtics couldn't miss a shot. I don't know how much of that is Joe Missoula, but I do have to give the guy some credit. His I, you know, I've been all over him, and his team has rallied back from down 3-0 to make it a respectable series. You lose the series in six games in Miami, which, by the way, if I'm making a prediction here, and I understand my predictions have been off this entire series. They've been, they've been pretty atrocious, admittedly. Both Corey and I, I'm not taking the full blame of that. I just happen to be the one who's here today, so I'll take the blame on that. But I understand my predictions have been off. But that being said, if I am making a prediction, I do think Miami is going to win game six. I mean, when the Celtics are at their best, Charles Barkley said it last night, when the Celtics are at their best, there's nothing Miami can do. But that being said, 
Heat weren't at their best last night either. And they were missing Gabe, Vin- Gabe Vincent, who was out for game five, and we'll see if he plays in game six. And that ended up being a bigger a bigger factor than uh, than we might have thought. But Jimmy Butler had 14 points last night. It was his lowest output of the series by far. It was the first time he hasn't really shown up. And so, <laughs> I mean, it's funny. It, it, it's, it's really an oversimplification, but here are a couple stats for you. When the Celtics have shot over 39% from three in these playoffs, they're 9-1. When they shoot below 39% from three, they're 1-7. So... And it's kind of a reality of today's NBA. It's like, all right, you make threes, you win. You miss threes, you lose. Almost like Alabama basketball this year. Although they did find a way to win games where they were missing shots. See, like, the second Arkansas game in, in Tuscaloosa. But, you know, you look at the San Diego State game where their season ended, they shot three of 27 that night. So, you know, the old live by the three, die by the three adage that people love to push. But uh, that being said, yeah, I mean, Jimmy Butler had 14 last night. It, it's a pretty simple formula. That's a lot easier said than done. Make your threes and limit Jimmy Butler. But, I mean, and I think Butler had, like, 29 in game three, something like that. So it's not like – or game four, rather. Um, so it's not like they did a crazy job limiting him in game four. But let's hear from, from Jimmy Butler after last night. We just got to play better, um, start the games off better on the starters, um, make it more difficult for them. They're in the rhythm since the beginning of the game. But we're always going to stay positive, knowing that we can and we will win this series. Um, and we'll just have to close it out at home. We can and we will win this series. That's Jimmy Butler. We can and we will win this series. It's a strong statement. It's, uh, you. I mean, you could call that. You can call that a guarantee. I mean, he said we will win this series. I mean, you have to like their chances. They only need to win one of the next two. But, again, they really do need to win game six. You can't go back to Boston. You can't blow a 3-0 lead. And, again, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think when down 3-0, any team has ever come back and forced the game seven. Not not to mention, obviously, no team has come back and won the series, but I don't think a a game seven has been forced at all. And so the Celtics have a chance to do just that tomorrow night in Miami. Do I think they will? Probably not. But I feel a lot better about it. I feel a lot better about their chances of doing it today than I did yesterday or two days ago. I after game three, after game three was over. After game four, you thought, okay, we'll see what happens. It's still probably over. And then then last night was last night. And man, I mean there's a reason the Celtics were the two seed. There's a reason this team went to the finals last year. This team's really good. This this team's phenomenal. And yes, they're they're undercoached, and I mean, Missoula winning two games in a row is not going to change my opinion on that. I don't think he's a good coach. And honestly, say the Celtics do win, or say the Celtics do lose Game Six, rather, which I do think is going to happen. It's almost like. All right, was it worth it? Because now we have we almost have to keep Joe Missoula. Well, not have to, but they're probably going to keep Joe Missoula if they lose Game Six. And so, was it worth it at that point? You get swept and embarrassed and exposed so badly that when you get swept, that you have to fire him. And now you win two games. It's like, oh, well, I guess we got to keep the guy. 
I guess this guy's our coach. Maybe he can get it done. Maybe we don't put ourselves in a 3-0 hole. Maybe, uh, maybe we can win these next year. It's like this is probably a different series if the Ime Adoka situation doesn't play out the way it does. But I don't know. I mean, Celtics certainly show what they were capable of the last two nights. We'll hear from Jason Tatum as well. Speaking for us in the last, um, this year and last year, when we've had a lead or tied the series up and came back home, for whatever reason, we've, uh, I don't know, relaxed, um, for lack of better words. And, you know, we've lost some crucial games at home and really just had to buckle down um, of going on the road, backs against the wall, you know, Nobody but us and the coaches and the guys in that locker room believed that, you know, you know, whether it's last year, last series, that, you know, we were going to win. Uh, but, you know, like I said, we got a really connected group. We got a group of determined, tough guys uh, that, like I said, I know I can count on. I know when I look to my left and my right, uh, when all hope seems to be lost, you know, when the game is on the line, our back's against the wall, that, you know, everybody's going to go down fighting, give everything they have. Um, and that's contagious because uh, we truly, whether it's ignorant belief, we do, we do believe uh, at all times that, you know, that we still have a chance that, you know, anything can happen. Anything can happen. I mean, that's what we said the other day. It's like you win game four. All right, don't let the don't let the Celtics win Game Four, because then you're going back to Boston. They're gonna win Game Five in Boston. Now it's a series. Again, I'm not saying the Celtics are gonna win this series. I still don't think they're going to, but we got a series now, and that's something we couldn't say say even yesterday. Bill Bender coming up at the bottom of the hour. We'll talk about this Alabama quarterback situation here on the other side of the break. Like I said, call during the breaks. Give me a call. I'd love to hear from you guys. 251-694-1055. You can always comment in the app as well. Love to see your guys' engagement there. You're listening to The Final Drive on 105.5 WNSP. Welcome back into a Friday edition of the Final Drive. Corey Labounty out sick today. Michael Brauner here for the next two and a half hours, give or take. Getting you through the rest of the week. And we got a nice three-day weekend coming up for Memorial Day weekend. So we're going to get into the Alabama quarterback situation. We'll do that a bit later, and we'll talk to Bill Bender about it. But I do want to talk about this it came out yesterday. Brian Harson kind of made and Corey and I talked about it a little bit yesterday but I want to get into this. Brian Harson kind of makes his first public comments. I guess it, I guess it was an interview. I, whatever you want to call it. doesn't really matter. Kind of first time he, he makes comments in the public eye since, uh, since the tenure at Auburn ended. Auburn family, let's ride. Auburn family, let's ride. Uh, and so, he still doesn't get it. 
he doesn't get why and here's the thing, and I'm not here to defend Brian Harson. And I know Auburn fans don't want to hear any defense of Brian Harson. And I'm not here to offer any defense of Brian Harson because frankly he was atrocious both on the field, off the field, really in any capacity that an SEC coach is supposed to be. But you know, I will say he did have to deal with things after year one in that first offseason that no coach should ever have to deal with. I, the boosters, I mean, it's a known fact at this point that the boosters at Auburn created a fake mutiny because they didn't want to pay him a buyout. And they were sick of him after one year, which, again, ultimately was going to be the right decision because the guy wasn't, <laughs> wasn't the coach to bring Auburn back to prominence. But the guy had a mutiny and his family was attacked and all, all this stuff. But so, you know, he was set up to fail, I guess you can say. But he didn't visit high schools. He refused to form relationships with these coaches. and But he still... I mean, some of these quotes, you know, I wasn't going to let it eat at me no matter how beep some of the things were that my family had to endure. Quote, there were things that we didn't like. There were things that were disappointing on and off the field. There were things I wish I would have done better, and there were things where we got a chance to see some of the worst in people. At the same time, here we are, we're thriving. Brian Harson quote, thriving away from football after Rocky tenure at Auburn. Well, I should hope so. Uh, he got $15 million to do nothing uh, for two years. Nothing. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about a guy. I, I don't think it's crazy to call this one of the worst coaching tenures in SEC history. Certainly one of the shorter ones in recent memory. But you're talking about a guy, he, he, he still paints himself as a victim, which, I again, I do get. I do get he had to deal with things that, were so utterly and completely ridiculous. But at the same time, you're talking about a coach who didn't do the basic fundamental things that the head coach of a major college football program needs to do. I mean, we would say, oh, he never visited Thompson High School. How do you not visit and form relationships with the coaches that is a feeder high school to the most talented players in the state? I, how do you expect to compete with the Alabamas, the Georgias, heck, the Mississippi and Mississippi states of the world, if you're if you're not recruiting at a basic fundamental level? But it's still poor me, poor Brian Harson, the guy who got fifteen million dollars to go away, and it's just I, if I'm an Auburn, and obviously you you know if you've listened to the show, I'm not an Auburn fan. I'm far from it. Uh, quite the opposite, as a matter of, as a matter of fact. But if I'm an Auburn fan, reading this, I mean, why why, why is this guy even making comments? Why is he even accepting interviews? If I'm Brian Harson, I'm I'm hearing that I'm hearing oh so and so whoever, ESPN, AL.com, what wh whatever it is, I I don't know who conducted the interview, wants to talk to me. I'm just gonna say no. You know what? Thanks, but no thanks. It's great. My family's thriving. We're happy. I don't. I don't wish the man ill will. Auburn fans might, but I don't wish the man ill will. But it just it just comes off as so so blech. Like why 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 is this guy? Why doesn't he just go away? 
Why doesn't he just? Uh, and he probably will coach again because again, this is a, he was a good football coach at Boise State. He won a lot of games. I understand he wasn't recruiting against the Alabamas and Georgias of the world, so it's a little bit obviously it was a swing and a miss of a hire for for Auburn. But uh, and you know he'll coach. I don't know out west somewhere. I don't know what he'll do. I don't know when we'll hear from Brian Harson from a coaching perspective again. He's he's in Boise, Idaho again now. That's that's where he, him him and his family are. And I don't know if if I'm an Auburn fan, I, I I'm just reading this stuff and and thinking, man, like for for as bad as Auburn was to him. In that first offseason, I'm not going to say he deserved it, but he was never going to be successful. It was never going to work out. He couldn't recruit. He couldn't coach on the field. I and mean, the offense was a mess last year. They didn't have a quarterback. Chances are, even if they had won that first year Iron Bowl, the results were going to be the same. We asked uh, Daryl Daprich about that yesterday. You know, if, had Tank Bigsby not gone out of bounds in 2021 and had Bryce Young not led a miracle 99 yard drive, Auburn wins that Iron Bowl. And Brian Harson isn't dealing with a with a mutiny in his first offseason as the Auburn head coach. But chances are, just from a purely on-field football perspective, uh, the results would have been the same. And he probably would have been fired after year two, maybe not in the middle of the season. But, I mean, it was so bad that it, it, he just never had a quarterback. Didn't, didn't recruit a quarterback. We thought Zach Calzado was going to be that. That flamed out. I don't know. Brian Harson just needs to step away for good. Maybe not make any comments about the Auburn situation ever again. And if I'm an Auburn fan, I I, I just don't want to hear the guy talk anymore. And don't don't really care what he has to say, frankly. We hear from Bill Bender. We'll talk to him about all this and more. Bill Bender from the Sporting News talking college football. Coming up after this, bottom of the hour, on the other side of the break, you're listening to The Final Drive, 105.5 WNSP. Hi, this is Luis Gonzalez, former South Alabama Jaguar and Major League player. You're listening to WNSP Mobile. Back to a Friday edition of the Final Drive. Corey LeBounty out sick. Be back on Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend. Nice three-day weekend. Call us at 251-694-1055. Give me a call at the end of the segment after the break. I'm running the board and running the show today, so bear with me a little bit here. But right now we got Sporting News National Writer. Talk a little college football. Bill Bender. Bill, how are you? Appreciate you hopping on. Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Anytime. So let's start with we, we just talked a little Brian Harson on, on the other side, and I'm gonna ask you about that. But let's let's start with the Alabama Texas game, which essentially means starting with the Alabama quarterback situation. I've asked a lot of guests this over the past week or so. Who's gonna start at quarterback for Alabama in that game? And the better question is, is it gonna be the same barring injury, is it gonna be the same guy who starts in the Iron Bowl? Well, I, I don't know because I, I would guess that both quarterbacks and by both, I mean Buckner and Milrow will play in the opener, and then it'll be a little bit of an open audition. I always point back to the year that 
when Jalen Hurts was a freshman, they started Blake Barnett, you know, and they, they went to other quarterbacks. They had Super Bateman played in the opener against USC. So there's going to be – somebody's going to have to go win that job, and it may go through the first game. We've seen that before. There's a history of that at Alabama. I noticed. I noticed you didn't. Uh, you didn't mention Ty Simpson in that. Well, I mean, he could factor in. I mean, obviously, he was. I just feel like in the spring game, it was more Milrow because he wasn't splitting as many reps. He played all the way into the fourth quarter, and you know, Simpson could factor in. But I mean, right now, the way I kind of see it is, they brought in Buckner for a reason, so he could compete for that starting job. He knows Tommy Reese, and. Um, it adds up to what's going to be a pretty good competition. Now, obviously, Nick Saban isn't going to shed much light on that. We won't. We, I guarantee you this. We probably won't know who the starter is until they take that first snap in the first game. I'm with you. Uh, and we'll get to Hugh Freeze and, and current Auburn in a second. But I do want to, since this Harson thing happened yesterday, I do want to ask you about this. I've, he comes out with this this interview and this feature yesterday and feels like he still kind of sees himself as a victim even though he you know showed a complete ineptitude at, at recruiting and really anything else I, I, what were your general thoughts on that well i mean you know brad harzen was the wrong fit from day one and rather that meant some other things happened obviously it wasn't a pretty two-year tenure and but in the sec and this is the key it's on the field one thing off the field's another. And I've told you this before, and you know this, that um, he's got a top ten recruiting class and finished like sixth in the SEC. So it is that is the most important thing is accumulating a roster with four and five-star talent that allows you to compete in an every-year basis. Let's talk about Hugh Freeze and the offseason that Auburn has had. They bring in like 21 new players, and obviously you bring in Peyton Thorne, who presumably is going to be the starting quarterback. You have a pretty soft schedule, certainly from a non-con. I mean, you have to play Alabama and Georgia, which is obviously Alabama and Georgia. Uh, but the non-conference schedule is a schedule you should go undefeated against. What do you see as, I guess, the ceiling and the floor for Hugh Freeze and Auburn in year one? I mean, the floor is typically five and seven in the SEC West with, you know, any because you can jump up and bite anybody, but it's tough. I mean, when you have to play old Nets, and by the way, Texas A&M's coming off a five and seven season, and just hired Bobby Petrino, and as a five-star quarterback, and could just as easily bounce back. So, I think Peyton Thorne gives them an interesting transition, a one-year transition as a guy that started a lot of the games for Michigan State, played in some big rivalry games, played against some good teams, but there'll be ups and downs in year one. But I think a realistic expectation is seven and five to get to a bowl game and build off that. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I think it would be a complete and utter failure if you go five and seven. I mean, they have three free wins before you get to Texas A&M week four. So, I mean, five and seven, I think, would be a disaster. Seven and five, I think should they should be looking at that as, if you're Hugh Freeze, at least, should be looking at that as the floor. Right. And, you know, getting to that whatever bowl game that ends up being. I mean, with SEC schools, you typically get a good bowl matchup no matter what. So, um I think those are things to keep in mind with Peyton Thorne as the starter. Like I said, there there's some good with Hugh Freeze. We do know he can coach offense. We do know that he's been around the block. And, uh, you know, this is his second chance at the SEC. He knows he can't really mess this one up. 
What do you make of the ACC? Are you buying the hype on Florida State and UNC? Could could nine and four last year Duke with Riley Leonard from down here in Fairhope make a push? Or is it Clemson's to lose? What what are your overall thoughts on the ACC? I mean, Florida State could definitely certainly make a run and be a team that factors in that at the end of the year. Um, the uh, Clemson is still theirs to lose. I mean, until somebody knocks them off. I know that didn't, you know, they, they bounced back. They didn't get the playoff, but they're measured on a different standard. North Carolina has Drake May. He's going to be very good. I think he's going to challenge to be the number one pick in the draft. But it really centers around Florida State and Jordan Travis and the receivers they have in a 10-win season and that opener against LSU that is the biggest game of the weekend. You know, last year it was kind of like a curiosity game. What's it going to look like with Brian Kelly? This year, it's a bona fide top 10 showdown that will be must-see TV. Do you see a TCU from, like, this year's version of TCU, like a dark horse that maybe not a lot of people are talking about? Uh, Texas? <laughs> they don't count, but, I mean, That's I fair. wouldn't be surprised. Texas is not a dark horse in any circumstance or any conversation, but... We'll not be surprised if they win the Big 12. We'll not be surprised if they're very competitive when they go to Bryant-Denny. Um, they're going to have a first-rate offense. They just have to start winning one-score games. I don't think Washington is quite on the TCU off the radar either, but I really like what they have with Michael Penix, Kaitlin DeBoer, and maybe they're the team that breaks the Pac-12 playoff drought that extends back to 15 when Washington made the playoff. Well, obviously – you know, that Texas game in Bryant-Denny, Alabama loses, doesn't uh, necessarily affect things in the SEC West. Maybe it affects Alabama's potential playoff status. But the SEC West, Brian Kelly's able to win it in year one. Alabama drops two games this season. Most of their quote-unquote hard games are at home. I mean, do you see – I mean, it feels like Brian Kelly overachieved in year one. Would, would not winning the SEC West in year two be a failure? Um, you know, I, I I guess, but no. I mean, they they got to compete with Alabama and Texas A&M. They feel good about where they're at. They definitely overachieved. They definitely silenced some critics. I mean, a lot of people were caught up on Brian Kelly's accent, and Brian Kelly's recruiting video, and Brian Kelly this because where Brian Kelly didn't go to Notre Dame for a farewell meeting, and I think all along the way, people forgot that Brian Kelly could coach football. Man, he yeah. he won 10 or more games like every year at Notre Dame for six years. And that's a, I would argue, much harder place to coach than than LSU. And I know that sounds crazy, but it is. I mean, Notre Dame is a place where they're demanding national championships. They haven't won one since 1988. Well, I mean, that's probably why, not probably, it, it is why Brian Kelly left Notre Dame for LSU. Well, he maxed out. I mean, he went to the playoffs twice. They played some Alabama teams that, we're just better, especially on the perimeter. They, uh, you know, they, they, he did well there, though. I, I would insist on that. And, and then I think he went to LSU because maybe he can get the recruits to – that was the narrative, that he would get the recruits necessary to go out and win a national title. And here we are. They, I think in a couple of years, they're always going to be in the hunt for it, no doubt in my mind. 
That's a good segue there because I was looking at your top 10 coaches list. I, I actually thought you had Brian Kelly a little bit low there at six. I thought it was interesting. You had Saban still over Kirby, which you can debate all day. I, I, I mean, Saban, you know, the goat versus the king, whatever spin you want to put on that. Dabo still at three. Uh, you know, so what, what does, I guess, Brian Kelly have to do to move up a little bit? And does Dabo, would not making a playoff again for Clemson this year start to move Dabo down finally? Well, I mean, that's what happened to Jimbo. Jimbo has kind of slipped down the rankings a little bit each year, a uh, spot or two each year, and now he's dropped there. Um, I think the interesting thing with uh, BK is I, I like that top seven a lot. I do. I like it through Lincoln Riley. I was very confident in how we stacked them up that way. Um, USC's a very good team. They've been to the, or he's been to the playoffs with Oklahoma. For BK, I think that's a pretty solid spot. He stayed there. He stayed at six, and, you know, it will depend on if Ryan Day and Jim Harbaugh moved down. Uh, this is as high as we've ever had Jim Harbaugh. His stock's up. You know, you can't complain with what he's done the last two years. Do you think that Harbaugh is kind of in a similar situation that Brian Kelly was in at Notre Dame in that maybe he's maxed out what he can do at Michigan? Um, maybe. May, I would almost compare him more to Dabba, though. It's because it took so long for him to get them right. And there were people that wanted Dabo fired because he lost like five in a row to South Carolina. And then he turned it around and got going. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think this is their most loaded team that he's had, especially in the backfield. They've got a good defense. They might. It's just, can they beat a Georgia or an Alabama? No longer can you beat Ohio State. No longer can you beat the Big Ten. It should no longer be he's overrated because he's not overrated, and I've said that for seven years. Um, but it's can you go out and beat a Georgia or an Alabama, and that's I guess we'll find out if he's maxed out or not when if they match up with, with those guys over the next two to three years. Now, if you've been on the Harbaugh is not overrated train for seven years, you know, good on you because it, it, it took me – the last two years to finally get to that i think i'd probably made the statement that he's the most overrated coach in sports uh until he's finally able to take down ohio state the last two years and then you know obviously i just think georgia is a uh, is a is a little bit of a different animal right and well i mean you heard me on schultz's shows for years i mean i would just kind of because i would tell people you don't understand what he inherited and how messy Michigan was when he got there and it wasn't going to happen overnight. It's not like, I mean, what Josh Heupel's done at Tennessee is kind of comparable. He's just done it faster uh, doing it in two years because of the offensive style he has. But I think the key to Jim Harbaugh's turnaround has been, they got back to what he likes to do. What does he like to do? He likes to run it down your throat, like to build it from the offensive and defensive lines. They're pretty good on those sides. They're not as good as Georgia and Alabama, but they're pretty good. And that's good enough to go win uh, 11 games and win the Big Ten and get off the, the Ohio State hurdle, which was a psychological hurdle that they finally cleared last year. Another one on that list is Josh Heupel, who, I, and I understand why he's not higher. I mean, it's you gotta you gotta build on that consistently. I mean, you can't punish him for the fact that he's only been there for two years. They've both been good two years, one of them great. Uh, but obviously, you know, you need to show it, show the ability to do it consistently. Hey, what do you what do you make of Tennessee this year? I think they're going to be good. I think uh, Josh Heupel is going to continue to you know build on what he's got. I mean, the X factor is Joe Milton. Depending on who you ask, he's either 
a bust waiting to happen or a potential, you know, this year's Anthony Richardson or he could be a top five pick. Yep. Um, it's, he knows how to coach offense. That's for sure. And whether or not that's liked in the NFL does not matter because he does not coach in the NFL. He coaches college football. So I think he's a very intriguing coach to watch this year, and I look for them to be pretty darn good too. Like, was the Tennessee-Alabama game just a, a matter of Josh Heupel being that much of a genius? That I, I mean, it was the same thing over and over again. Was Pete Golding that foolish and Nick Saban that severely outcoached, or was Josh Heupel that brilliant with his schemes? No, I think it came down to Alabama laid up at the end of the game. I mean, I still think that. They laid up for a field goal and missed it, and that gave Tennessee enough. And when you get in games like that that were – up and down, ton of points, not much defense, a lot of pass interference calls, you have to have the last shot. You have to have the last shot or overtime, and I think Alabama kind of laid up. So, I mean, yeah, they obviously made a bunch of big plays, and Jalen Hyatt made a bunch of money in that game, but uh, it, you got to be able to have that last shot in that game. And I didn't take much from them. I mean, Alabama, we were in a 12-team playoff last year. The good chance the championship game would have been Alabama and Georgia. Do you think Tennessee can win the East? They could, certainly. I mean, maybe. Uh, it's in Knoxville. It's just as big a game, biggest stage, and we'll see where they're at when they get there. It might be a little bit harder this year. I, I just think that Georgia machine doesn't care, right? Like, yeah. Georgia's probably going to be 10 and 0 when they go to Knoxville. That means that they will have won 43 of 44 games at that point if they can get to 10 and 0. So, um, There'll be another measuring stick for them. It's going to be tough to duplicate it, but, I mean, these are three programs that are all Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, LSU. Those are all national championship contenders, and there's no other conference that can say they have four schools that are equipped to win a national championship this year. Talking to Bill Bender from the Sporting News covers college football. Uh, last thing I want to ask you, Bill, Deion Sanders, year one, how do you see it playing out? find out and it's going to be entertaining and everybody I don't people have their mind made up anyway that's something with him that you now people have already made up their mind based on his speech in December so I, I think there's going to be a really rough start if you look at their schedule you know I'm talking like one and four oh and five then they'll take some steps in the second half of the season with Shadur Sanders and they'll probably end up like three and nine or four and eight and some people will label that a failure I, I would argue given the roster turnover and everything he's trying to do, that, that, that'll be a baby step in the right direction. And he can continue to accumulate talent. I mean, he, he can accumulate attention. We'll see how much he can accumulate talent over the next couple of years in Boulder. But I'm still willing to give him benefit benefit of the doubt, and I'm excited to watch it. It's Bill Bender from the Sporting News. Bill, how can everyone follow your coverage? Yeah, I'm at BillBender92 at SportingNews.com. I mean, you know, Memorial Day weekend. I hope everybody has a good one. It's, a, it's an important time to reflect and, and those kind of things and thank all of our military servicemen. So um, that's what we're going to do this weekend, and we'll get back at it with some more college football content this, next week. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Bill. Really appreciate you hopping on on a final drive Friday. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. Take care. We'll, we'll talk soon. Bill Bender from the Sporting News. Four o'clock, we're going to have Roger Hoover talk a little Alabama baseball, what's going on at the SEC tournament. That was good stuff. Bill Bender does great work covering college football. Get a nice wide base there.
We'll wrap up our number one here on the other side. Give me a call during the break if you want to hop in the show. 251-694-1055. You're listening to The Final Drive on 105.5 WNSP. Hi, this is Juan Sierra, former South Alabama Jaguar, former MLB player, and you're listening to WNSP. Big thanks to Bill Bender from the Sporting News hopping on, spending some time talking college football with us. He mentioned something at the end there. Of course, it's uh, you know Friday before Memorial Day weekend. Just make sure you take some time, do some reflection this weekend. Memorial Day, of course, honoring our service members who have died and uh, served our country. So, very important holiday, and it's time to reflect and thank those who have served so not just a three-day weekend but certainly something to keep in mind this weekend so we wrap up our number one here it's deandre hopkins release today and there was a whole bit of drama throughout the offseason oh who's gonna trade for deandre hopkins where's deandre hopkins gonna go how much Draft compensation is going to require to give up for DeAndre Hopkins. Who's going to trade for DeAndre Hopkins? And it just culminates in no one traded for him before the draft. He may, he was on a big contract, and no one wanted to give up draft compensation for an aging receiver who was suspended at the start of last year, and his play has steadily declined over the years. Not not that he was he was actually pretty good in the games he played. He started uh, with a six game suspension at the start of the season and came back and played some good football. I do still believe he has good football left in the tank, but you know, no one was giving up a second-round pick for DeAndre Hopkins. And so now it becomes a question of probably who's going to pay the most money at this point. And I know DeAndre Hopkins probably at this point wants to compete for a Super Bowl, but you know, you know, can't really blame him. Probably also wants to cash in. So we'll see what happens there. Teams that have been mentioned... Obviously, like the Chiefs and Bills of the world and Patriots have been thrown in as a potential name there from the beginning. They they uh, had certainly kicked the tires on a trade but couldn't come to compensation. Maybe the Bears, Giants are teams that could, uh, could pay him a little bit of money. We'll see what happens there. Uh, he certainly has been one of the better receivers in the NFL over the past decade or so. He just, you know, he's not the same guy. And I think that's the general consensus around the league is that DeAndre Hopkins isn't the same guy anymore. Yeah, we'll see what happens, but how about a return to Houston for DeAndre Hopkins if it's not a matter of uh, playing for a ring, which even if they say that, it, it often isn't. It's like if Houston will pay him the most money, he'll he'll go to Houston. I'm sure he still loves Houston. Obviously, the tenure ended badly with Bill O'Brien trading him for a bag of footballs, but I'm sure he'd love that and play with C.J. Stroud and play with will anderson and a new coach and D'Amico ryan's and be a part of uh the building of a new culture although he did say one of his uh one of his big things was like wanting to play for a team with stable management because uh, he's played for four gms in four years and the texans organization as a whole 
over the last decade or so you can kind of describe as the opposite of stable really extremely unstable he he honestly might never play for that organization again i think everyone who was there is pretty much gone from his time there but that being said he might still have uh, a sour taste in his mouth about the houston texans but i imagine he still has a lot of love for the city and still might be willing to entertain that if they would pay him which you know would that benefit the texans any i don't know probably not i mean they're gonna be a bad football team regardless so be a fun story though something to monitor for sure deandre hopkins released by the cardinals today so we'll keep an eye on where he lands one hour down two more to go roger hoover crimson tide sports network play-by-play -play for alabama baseball coming up here on the other side appreciate you guys tuning in give me a call during the breaks when we don't have a guest coming up 251-694 105.5. You're listening to The Final Drive on 105.5 WNSP. Radio 105.5 WNSP presents 99 yards away. Win this game for one another. The final drive with Corey Labounty and Michael Bronner. Do your job and play together. The final drive live on 105.5 FM and streaming on the Sound of Mobile app. I cannot believe it. Welcome back into a Friday edition of the Final Drive. Corey Labounty out sick today. Michael Bronner getting you through the next two hours until Memorial Day weekend. Been a good first hour. It's going to be a good next two. Right here we got Roger Hoover, Crimson Tide Sports Network, does a phenomenal job doing play-by-play, -play, working with Chris Stewart as well. Covering Alabama baseball. Roger, how are you? Appreciate you taking some time to hop on. Yeah, Michael doing really well. It's a busy time here in Hoover as we're gearing up for the fourth Alabama game in the last four days. But we're hoping uh, we go all six days of this tournament and get to play for a championship on Sunday. But everything's been great. Uh, the Crimson Tide have had a really good week so far. I can't not say it, Roger. I mean, we got we got Hoover and Hoover. <laughs> I love making those jokes on the air, too. So, yeah, it's, it's very fun, and especially I live in the Birmingham area, so it's nice to have some home games this week. Uh, so no one has a closer eye on this team than you. Why, what do you think has changed so dramatically with this team since, obviously, the departure, we'll call it, of Brad Bohannon? They've been playing loose and free, you know, uh, 10 and 3, I believe, uh, since that move was made uh, prior to the Vanderbilt series back in early May. And, uh, you know, they've been wearing these camo ball caps uh, each and every day. That's typically an in-practice ball cap now. That's been kind of a rallying cry for this group, getting to wear those uh, during games, during this winning stretch. And they just love playing together. You know, we had a tough road trip a couple weeks ago at Texas A&M, dealt with a lot of weather, even dealt with a seven-hour rain delay. And I think A&M was ready to pack up shop and go home. Alabama just wanted to play. Even once that game was played, had to stay an extra day there due to some travel difficulties, and that didn't phase this group at all. They just kind of loved 
getting to hang out on the road once again and enjoy being uh, each other's teammates. So it's a group that's really playing uh, for their buddies to the left and the right of them every single day. And I think it's a veteran team. We knew that coming into the season that the veteran leadership would pay off for this team at some point this season. I didn't think we would see any off-field troubles like we saw this year, but uh, everybody's just embraced uh, their teammates, to, again, the left and right of them, and they're playing for each other, and that's been really good to see. Now, I argue it was almost worth it because it led to us getting to eliminate Auburn, but, I mean, have you ever seen anything quite like what happened against Florida the other night? Uh, could you repeat that? I'm sorry, you cut out on me just one second. I said, uh, you know, I'd argue it was worth it just because of the fact that we got to eliminate Auburn, but have you ever seen anything <laughs> quite like what happened against Florida the other night? Yeah, that was a heartbreaker. That was an absolute heartbreaker because, you know, Alabama did so many things well to get to that point, go up 6-3. to three. Tommy Seidel had the clutch hit. And uh, really, in a lot of ways, that game was lost in the bottom of the eighth on the throwing error that allowed the tying run to score. So you felt like you had a bonus when you were able to get up. But uh, finally, Alton Davis second kind of looked human a little bit on the mound. He's been a lockdown closer for the Crimson Tide. And he inherited a bit of a mess in the bottom of the 11th inning. Uh, unfortunately, got the loss. And I wasn't really sure how this group would bounce back. Uh, not paying so quickly, only about 15 hours later uh, from that devastating loss. Didn't know how they would have some energy against the Auburn Tigers when they came out. Looked great. Built up an early lead. Tommy Seidel, a huge part of that once again. And yes, to uh, send Auburn home knowing you get to stay home and have a chance to continue to fight for a championship uh, was certainly a lot of fun here yesterday. Yeah, I want to ask you about Tommy Seidel. I mean, just how much has he meant to this team over the last two seasons since transferring from Harvard? Yeah, he's brought in a really competitive fire, which, again, you maybe wouldn't expect from somebody that uh, went to Harvard, didn't even get to play baseball in 2021 after the pandemic uh, canceled sports for the entire school year in the Ivy League. Uh, you know, he is somebody that has really a football mentality. Uh, he is a great locker room leader, and he's somebody that everyone has really rallied around. You know, I think Jim Jarvis probably brings energy more than anybody for this team, but Tommy Seidel's a close second, and uh, he's off to a great start so far in this SEC tournament. Hits in his last five at that. Of course, Alabama able to win the series against Vanderbilt. Uh, after the after the Bohannon situation immediately plays out, the first thing they do is win a series against a top five team. Now taking on Vanderbilt at 6:30 tonight, in you know really what they're fighting for their SEC tournament lives again. Can Alabama do it again tonight? And what chances do you give them realistically to win their first SEC tournament title since 2003? Yeah, that'd be fun to see them compete for it. I think the Crimson Tide are really set up well pitching-wise for today. Jacob McGarry will go on the mound. Uh, he'll be opposed by Devin Petrell, a really good lefty for the Vanderbilt Commodores, and this was the pitching matchup in the final game of the series in Tuscaloosa when Alabama won 2-1 to one on a late home run by Baxter Steady. So I think everybody feels really good about it. Jacob McNary on the mound. If Alabama is able to win this game, move into tomorrow and the semifinals and the championship on Sunday, uh, to be honest with you, the pitching will be pretty thin by that point, but that happens to a lot of teams that are able to win the SEC tournament, so not sure who Alabama would turn to after we uh, hope to get a really good start today from Jacob McNary, but it's just exciting to be in this position. You know, the Crimson Tide uh, the last three years have had lengthy stays here at the SEC tournament, and uh, this one might end up being the lengthiest of all. How much is it going to mean for Alabama to host a regional for the first time since 2006? It will mean a lot, uh, especially considering how much money you know, the previous administration 
poured into Sewell Thomas Stadium uh, under the direction of Bill Battle. You know, so many million dollars uh, upgrading everything about that ballpark. Even we're here at Hoover Metropolitan Stadium where Alabama had to call home throughout the entire 2015 season. It was truly a full year on the road for this group. And then to not be rewarded just yet with getting to play postseason baseball in your own ballpark has been tough on this Alabama baseball program. So I think it's credit to interim head coach Jason Jackson and this group for believing in themselves because nobody was talking about hosting a regional once that news that Coach Bohanna was being let go was announced earlier this season. Everyone at that time, Alabama was considered a regional team, but again, nobody was talking hosting or anything like that. And there's a potential if Alabama can win this tournament, Michael, we could see Alabama as a top eight seed for the tournament. And that would mean you could possibly host a super regional. So again, these are conversations we were not having a few weeks ago, but as we end the month of May, we certainly are having, and that's great to see for these players to have really deserved it. You know, I think of a fifth-year senior like Drew Williamson, who homered his final at-bat against Ole Miss uh, in the regular season, and he said, uh, if that is the last time I'm at this ballpark, that's a great memory to go out on, but uh, the Bruton David said, but I would love to be back here again, and I think we're getting very close to seeing that happen. Let's talk about Jason Jackson for a second. I mean, obviously, he's exceeded expectations. He's done a phenomenal job. Like you said, the team is 10-3. and three. You know, they have a really good chance. to. They're set up to make a postseason run. I mean, if they could host the Super Regional, that would be, you know, almost a, a dream scenario. You wouldn't even have thought that's possible. What is it going to – like, will it take Alabama making it to Omaha for Coach Jackson to get the job? Like, I know they're going to swing for bigger names. Like, And it feels like an inter, hiring an interim coach off an emotional run usually doesn't work out like what what do you think what do you make of the impending coaching search uh, I trust Greg Byrne to make the best decision possible for Alabama and he and I talked about it on uh, one of my shows a couple weeks ago Crimson Drive you know he's looking for the best possible coach in college baseball to lead this program you know he said it doesn't have to necessarily be a sitting power five head coach uh, he does he sometimes likes hiring assistant coaches to be uh, head coaches for the very first time because he always talks about, you know, everybody at some point gave Nate Oates his first chance or Nick Saban his first chance or any great head coaches throughout history. Somebody always is willing to make that hire. So I think he's looking uh, all across the country and has to be impressed with what Jason Jackson's done so far. I think what J.J. has done more than anything, he's just been calm and steady. And I've always seen that uh, throughout his six years as Alabama's pitching coach, but it's really translated well to managing the entire roster. And, you know, he's got tremendous help around him. You know, all the burden isn't on him for writing out the lineup card every day, working with the hitters. He's still, everybody's kind of staying in their own lanes with what they've been able to do uh, even prior to the coaching change. So uh, he's been a tremendous leader so far for this program. And again, I, I feel like Alabama will be in really good shape no matter what direction Greg Byrne wants to go in. Talking to Roger Hoover, Crimson Tide Sports Network. Roger, Alabama and Auburn really entered the SEC tournament as two of the hottest teams in the country. Obviously, you know, we talked about the emotional boost and, and the players, you know, playing together and having each other's backs after the Bohannon situation. I, just from a from a baseball perspective, removing the emotional aspect about it, how, like how did they turn this thing around and, and started winning, beating some teams that you, really you, you wouldn't have thought they had a great chance to beat? I think it's just putting uh, veteran players in spots where they can be successful, and it starts on the mound. You know, the rotation is not exactly what Alabama had planned going into the season. We really wanted to see Grayson hit and Ben Hess be part of the weekend rotation, and they were and pitched well early in the season, but both of those guys go down with injury, 
And you take two pitchers, Darren McMillan and uh, Jacob McNary, who both, you know, made 10 starts in the league a year ago and pitched in the SEC tournament. Uh, they know what it takes. Even McNary pitched before in a regional two years ago in Ruston. So it was the veteran, those two veteran guys who were going to be part of the midweek success that Alabama had and even uh, some relief work. Now they're starters, and they have been performing extremely well. They're pitched like veteran pitchers because I think they just know a few things having made so many starts that you can't teach. You know, they have a real natural for getting out of the inning with men on base, knowing how to get that ground ball when, you know, maybe a younger pitcher or hot shot prospect is thinking about how to strike everybody out. They kind of know what they need to do to subtract a little bit to get some weak contact. So they fit in really well there. You know, the bullpen's been really organized ever since the Auburn series uh, with how Alton Davis II has taken over the closer role and really hadn't been in any trouble at all until uh, this past week against Florida. So that kind of put everything in line with the bullpen. And then, these position players are just continuing to have the year they've had, and it's really uh, every day that we come to the ballpark, we know somebody one through nine will deliver. Uh, your Alabama's rarely been shut out, rarely had a game where they only got a handful of hits and a loss. You know, most of the losses in SEC play, Alabama scored at least five runs. So it's a lineup that is really good. Uh, I think, again, everybody's kind of comfortable in their roles. They know what to expect. The one thing that we have seen since the start of May is uh, really the lineup hasn't changed very much. Uh, and in terms of the batting order, in terms of positions, there are a few wrinkles here and there, but it's very, very consistent each time these come, guys come to the ballpark, and we really haven't seen that before. So everybody is kind of feeding off that steady hand again of Jason Jackson, that consistency, and these veteran players are performing like veterans. Wrapping it up here with Roger Hoover, Crimson Tide Sports Network. Roger, you know, talking about that steady hand, how does Jason Jackson keep the guys focused on the task at hand and not, you know, obviously you got Vanderbilt at 630 tonight and could very well end, their, end your SEC tournament run right there. So how, do, how does Jason Jackson keep these guys from, you know, dreaming of a uh, championship run this weekend? Uh, can you repeat that again? You, again, you broke up with me. I'm sorry, Michael. How, how, that's all right. How does, uh, how does Coach Jackson kind of keep these guys focused on one game at a time and, and not, uh, you know, looking ahead to championship weekend? I think they've been doing that ever since uh, the change happened. Uh, you know, even going back to that Vanderbilt series, it was all that was his message the entire time. It's like, look, don't be worried about what this means to the program long term or what could happen over the summer. Just focus on the next game in front of you, next practice in front of you. I think we've heard that all throughout the year. And these guys have done a good job of that too even before the coaching change happened you know midweek games had really hurt alabama last year uh some unnecessary losses that probably cost alabama a chance to make the ncaa tournament uh this year they took their tuesday and wednesday games and especially non-conference play very very seriously uh, only losing one and that one loss is an extra inning so i think this is a group that even before all this happened uh, had that good focus and attention detail and and it's, again, thanks to the veteran leadership, uh, players like Drew Williamson, Tommy Seidel, Jim Jarvis, Andrew Pingney, kind of keeping everybody in line and uh, focusing on the very next at-bat, which is tough to do when you're at this level of college baseball, especially when there's pressure of the draft coming up this summer. You add in the added wrinkle of the coaching change, but uh, these guys have really performed well. He's Roger Hoover, Crimson Tide Sports Network. Roger, thank you so much for taking some time. Thank you for all your great coverage. How can everyone uh, listen into the game tonight? Wilson across Crimson Tide Sports Network. Chris Stewart and I will have the call uh, starting just before 6 o'clock, and uh, we'll have a lot of social media clips as well on the Crimson Tide Sports Network. Just follow us at UA underscore CTSN for all the latest of the time, and uh, look forward to hopefully uh, another great run, and maybe we can catch up again soon about the Crimson Tide. But thank you for having me on, Michael. Roll Ab Tide. Absolutely. Roll Tide. Appreciate you taking some time, Roger.
That was Roger Hoover with the Crimson Tide Sports Network taking some time. Really appreciate him up at Hoover in Hoover, you know, up at the SEC tournament. Yeah, obviously, you heard all the background noise there. He's a he's a busy man this week, a crazy week at the SEC tournament in Hoover, but very nice of Roger to take some time and talk a little Crimson Tide baseball with us. Bottom of the hour, we're going to talk Saints with Ross Jackson, Locked On Saints. Find out what's going on at OTAs. You can give me a call during this break, 251-694-1055, if you want to hop in on the conversation. You're listening to The Final Drive on 105.5 WNSP. Bench coach of the Houston Astros, and you're listening to WNFT. Welcome back to a Friday edition of the Final Drive. Corey Bounty out sick today. Be back on Tuesday. We're hoping Corey recovers and feels better over the weekend. About halfway down, bottom of the hour here, we're going to talk to Ross Jackson. Locked on Saints, find out what's going on at OTAs. Big thanks to Roger Hoover for taking some time, hopping on. You can always comment in the app. Give me a call during the breaks. I'll get to him as I can as I'm running the board and hosting the show simultaneously today. So it's a little bit more difficult to get to phone calls, but I will do what I can if you give me a call at 251-694-1055. Let's talk about the Alabama quarterback situation for a second. I had written something, and you can go check it out on WNSP.com if you're so inclined, about probably five days ago, six days ago at this point, uh, kind of predicting Alabama's quarterback depth chart and how things are going to play out for the Crimson Tide from a signal caller perspective. You got five quarterbacks on the roster now. It's not ideal it's not it's not a problem it's it's an interesting situation generally you carry four generally you don't want to waste a a roster spot on a fifth quarterback you really would have thought after the transferring in of tyler buckner that one of these guys would have left and it just wasn't the case you know everyone everyone stayed the course everyone stayed i would have thought milrow would have been the odd man out i would have thought milrow would have been the one to leave but was not the case. Milro elects to stay. Ty Simpson elects to stay. And the only reason I signal out, single out Milro there is because, you know, he's older. He's a year older than Ty Simpson. And if he were not to win the job this year, you know, that's uh, two years gone at Alabama. And, you know, without without really playing, obviously, uh, he played a little bit last year. Not well, uh, but in, in relief of the injured Bryce Young. Uh, so I would have thought Milrow would have been the odd man out. Maybe one of the freshmen, but in Dylan Lonergan or Eli Holstein. And you still could see that, I think, after this season. We'll see how the season plays out because don't forget, you got a stud coming in and Julian Sayan, who I don't know if he's going to come in and start as a freshman. I, I think a lot of it just depends on how this season goes at the quarterback's p- uh, position for Alabama. And we'll see what happens, but... You know, say, let's say Ty Simpson wins the job 
and is starting against Middle Tennessee State and keeps the job throughout the season, meaning he's playing pretty well and the team is winning games. Um, you know, Julian Sayan's not going to come in and win that job freshman year. He he just won't. Ty Simpson will will hold on to it for another year. And in an ideal world, you know, Ty Simpson's good enough over the next two years. Again, this is all hypothetical, but in this hypothetical, Ty Simpson is good enough over the next two seasons where he'd be leaving for the NFL anyway. Uh, so, you know, that might be a pipe dream. We'll see. I do, I, I do believe that Ty Simpson is the highest ceiling there. I mean, maybe J- you could say Jalen Milrow just because the athleticism, uh, you know, if he's able to figure out how to consistently throw a ball accurately, which I don't know if that's ever going to happen. feels like if that was going to happen, it would have happened by now. And it hasn't. So we'll see. We'll see how things play out. I mean, what I wrote the other day, I, I do think that Jalen Milrow is going to begin the season as the starter. Whether he holds on to the job or not, we'll see. I think uh, I think it depends on a lot of things. One is the team winning games, and you'll find that out early in week two with Texas coming to town because you know Texas is going to come in and put up points. Uh, you're not going to shut Texas out. You're not going to hold Texas to. 19 what you hold him what you held him to in Austin last year with a backup quarterback um and you beat him 20 to 19 you're not that's not going to happen again so you got to figure Texas is probably going to come in and put up 30 points in Brian Denny with Quinn Ewers and that trio of receivers so you're going to have to score I do think it's Milrow just cuz of seniority it's funny with Tyler Buckner after that transfer happened it, it was almost like all right surely they're bringing him in to be the starter and you know why would they bring him in if he's not going to be the starter? And he has experience in Tommy Reese's system, which is really the most overblown thing ever. I think that that whole narrative about how Tyler Buckner has experience with Tommy Reese—who cares? I mean, Tommy Reese is coming in learning the Alabama offense. He's learning a new offense too. So, you know, I, I don't think Tyler Buckner's experience under Tommy Reese gives him a leg up over Jalen Milrow and Ty Simpson. I think Jalen Milrow and Ty Simpson have a leg up over Tyler Buckner because they've been at Alabama now for two years, three years for Milrow. And and so, yeah, I mean, Buckner's coming in learning an entirely new offense that Tommy Reese is also learning. Tommy Reese is not coming in, and yes, they're going to tweak some things, and Milrow's going to give his thought. You know, they're not running the exact same offense that Bill O'Brien or Lane Kiffin or whatever offensive coordinator you want. They're not going to run the exact same offense, but it's the same scheme. It's the same system. You're not bringing in Tommy Reese to completely overhaul the system. You're bringing in Tommy Reese because you think he's capable of running your system effectively. And so, and maybe getting, maybe turning the clock back and, you know, running the damn ball or whatever, whatever you want to say there. So, yeah, I, I think that narrative was greatly overstated from the beginning about Buckner and his experience with, with Tommy Reese. I don't think it really matters. But it felt like when, when the Buckner transfer first happened, it's like, okay, yeah, Tyler Buckner's the starter. I guess Alabama's going to be starting a guy who has six touchdowns and eight interceptions in his career. Alabama's done. Uh, Tyler Buckner's the starter, which, again, Tyler Buckner could win the job. Uh, you know, he, he, there is potential there. You've seen his shiftiness, and, you know, again, if he can throw a ball consistently, we'll see what happens. But he doesn't come in with any kind of – he comes in at a severe disadvantage due to the fact that he hasn't been at Alabama. He doesn't have any leg up just because he's played under Tommy Reese for two years. He's at a disadvantage. It, it really is the opposite. So for that reason, 
you know, I don't think Jalen Milrow is better than Ty Simpson, but I do think he has another year of experience than, than Ty Simpson has. So I think Jalen Milrow starts the season as the starter. I, whether he finishes the season as the starter is an entirely different question, but I think the depth chart reads as follows against Texas. Jalen Milrow, QB1, QB2, Ty Simpson, QB3, Tyler Buckner, QB4, Eli Holstein, QB5, Dylan Lonergan. As for four and five, really, you know, those are interchangeable. You can throw out either order of Holstein or Lonergan you prefer. Uh, I think they can both be good. Whether they're whether either of them will ever be the starting quarterback at Alabama, I don't know. Uh, you know, they could be. They certainly could be. I don't know if they will be, but uh, both of them have talent. I mean, these are two guys who are top ten in their class for a reason. Uh, you know, you know my thoughts on Arch Manning. <laughs> I, I think they're every bit as good as Archman. Like Malachi Nelson at USC and Nico Imaleva at Tennessee at Tennessee are both a lot better than Arch Manning. But I, and I think Malachi did actually end up passing Arch Manning in like the final recruiting rankings. But uh, you know, I, I I think Holstein Lonergan have every bit of a chance as being you know what Arch Manning is. I don't know if Arch Manning's ever going to start a game at Texas because I do think Quinn Ewers is really good and I think Quinn Ewers is going to be there for two years. So we'll see what happens there. But, you know, if you listen to this show, you know I'm not very high on Arch Manning. I am very high on Quinn Ewers. And so we'll see what we'll see how that situation plays out. But yeah, I, I just tend to believe right now and I would like it to be Ty Simpson, because like I said, I, I do think he has the highest potential of any of any of the uh any of the five, really. But don't be surprised when uh, when it's Jalen Milrow trotting out there for Middle Tennessee State to start the season. It, it was funny, Bill Bender, when I asked him, he said, like, uh, I think it'll be a two-man competition. And I assumed he was about to say Milrow and Simpson, and he said Milrow and Buckner. He didn't even include Simpson in that, which I, you know, take that as he will. But I, don't know, I, I think that Simpson's the best of the three, or... He hasn't really shown that he's the best of the three, but I think he can be the best of the three. So we'll see what happens. It's going to be a long summer of speculation. We're going to keep doing it. But, yeah, I would guess Jalen Milrow right now. Don't be surprised if Ty Simpson puts his nose in front. I don't think either of the freshmen have a shot, but we'll see. Ross Jackson, Locked On Saints, coming up here on the other side. 5 o'clock, we're going to talk to Ryan Phillips from the Tuscaloosa Patch. Give me a call after a uh, after a break, though. We don't have a segment, a guest coming up, 251-694-1055. I would like to hear from you guys on the phone and in the app. Comment in the app, and we'll discuss. But you're listening to The Final Drive on 105.5 WNSP. My name is Robert Brazil. I'm from the class of 2018 Pro Football Hall of Fame. You're listening to WNSP. Welcome back to a Friday edition of the Final Drive. Corey Labounty out sick today. Michael Brauner getting you through your Friday. About halfway down. Place hasn't burned down yet. We're making it got ross jackson host locked on saints does a great job covering the saints for us appreciate you hopping on ross how you doing man 
Hey, buddy. Absolute pleasure, man. Thanks so much for having me on. Doing great. Glad to be here with you. Oh, we love to have you. So we'll get we'll get right into it here. OTAs underway fully. What What is the general temperature in the building, I guess, both from a fan perspective and a, and a player and coach perspective for the season after bringing in Derek Carr this offseason? Yeah, I'd say that the temperature is a pretty positive one. Um, you know, this is a team that wanted a quarterback that was going to be able to handle multiple calls in the huddle, get in and out of the huddle cleanly, identify, you know, pressure and uh, call protections and set protections, kind of get back to the way that the offense was run. Um, uh, I'll, I'll carefully say run with Drew Brees, which isn't to compare Derek Carr and Drew Brees, but it is just to say the responsibilities of the quarterback are now back to sort of being what the Saints are a little bit more accustomed to as opposed to sharing protection calls, pre-snap reads and adjustments and things like that with the center. It all goes back to the quarterback. So kind of puts the Saints back into a little bit more familiar territory. And then um, you know, outside of that, the, the rest of it is can the, can the weapons around Derek Carr and Derek Carr, uh, you know, stay healthy uh, health has been an issue for the saints the past couple of years so right now we're kind of in on paper season and things look really great but you know once once they hit the field health is going to be a big part of that factor yeah it's been a revolving door obviously of quarterbacks since drew Brees retired and and you give Derek carr a four-year 160 million dollar deal and I, de- I definitely don't think it was a bad move by any stretch it, it's he's going to steady the quarterback position for a team whose biggest issue has been just that over the past few years or so so I mean, what do you what do you see as the I guess ceiling and floor for the team? Yeah, I'd probably say I mean the the floor for this team could be you know uh, right back where they were last year, seven and ten, or even worse if you know if if injuries are a part of that conversation because that's kind of like the Saints have done some good things in terms of making sure that like the secondary, for instance, they built out a lot of depth there. They started to build out the depth on the defensive line, offensive line. That's all imperative is having that young talent and depth behind those starters that can come in because you are going to deal with some injuries, but the floor can be mighty low for any NFL team because of that factor. But the ceiling for this team is a double digit win team that wins the division and heads into the playoffs. And I think that that's, kind of where my expectation is for this team at the moment, especially in a weak division and in a weak conference with weak opponents and, you know, the best quarterback that they might face this year will be either uh, Trevor, uh, yeah, Trevor Lawrence, I I think it's safe to say maybe is the best quarterback that they're going to face this season. So I I think that puts them in a good position. They should have the better quarterback in most matchups and they'll certainly have the better defense in most matchups. And those are the two big things that are going to win you games and that's that's where the saints wanted to be going into the season and so hopefully they'll be able to take advantage of that yeah you brought up the weak division and obviously that's that's a big factor in having hope for the season do you think that the Derek carr move is a move the saints still make if say i don't know they, they play in a very strong division and the opportunity to capitalize on arguably the worst division in football is not there like that Yeah, I imagine they still would have gone down the road, but I also could see a reality in which that impacts Derek Carr's decision-making, right? I mean, you have the opportunity to go to a weak division here if you're Derek Carr, and maybe that ends up moving the needle for you a little bit, along with the existing relationships with guys like Dennis Allen and Joe Woods and these other guys that he's overlapped with uh, in the past. Uh, You know, the other team that was really trying to court him during the the time in which the Saints signed him ahead of free agency officially opening up was the uh, New York Jets, New York Jets, excuse me, but the Jets, it was very clear that their priority number one was going to be Aaron Rodgers. And so, you know, uh, Derek Carr coming out of a situation in which 
he never wanted to leave the Raiders, but the Raiders effectively gave up on him. It meant a lot for him to go somewhere that felt that he felt wanted him. So he might have still picked the New Orleans Saints, no matter how strong or weak the division was. And so this offseason could have looked similar one way or another. Uh, but I do imagine that their aggression, I do imagine that their the, their belief that they can compete has been positively uh, impacted by how weak the division is for sure. What's uh, what's going on with Alvin Kamara? It kind of feels like the legal situation has not been swept under the rug, but almost forgotten about. And what they do draft Kendra Miller from TCU, who could end up replacing him. What what's the general scope, I guess, on Alvin Kamara? Yeah, I think, you know, right now everything's kind of in a holding pattern because nothing's going to happen between now and his trial date, which isn't set until July 31st. So there's not going to be really any okay. movement before then. Uh, will that trial date remain on the 31st or will it be continued, much like the hearings were, just were, were continued all last season? Uh, do we see this you know, court date just get pushed back and back and back further and further? You know, we were expecting Alvin Kamara to serve his suspension last season but the trial never happened <laughs> and the hearing never happened. And so, uh, you know, the Saints were able to avoid and Alvin Gary was able to avoid that suspension. Now, you know, New Orleans, much like we just discussed with the secondary, the offensive line and defensive line, they have a better supporting cast behind Alvin Kamara than they've had uh, in, in many seasons. And so, I think that they're in a position now to where if he does end up taking a suspension, we should expect it to be at least six games if things go, you know, regardless of how things go with the uh, trial itself uh, within the legal proceedings because the NFL will investigate it independently and on their own. This, the, the unfortunate thing for Alvin Kamara is that this whole altercation or alleged altercation took place at an NFL event at the, at the Pro Bowl, and so that's going to that's gonna impact the NFL's you know, decision-making process and the um, code of conduct for the NFL says that within it comes to any violent crimes or, or violent altercations, that it is a minimum six-game suspension. So uh, we should expect that to be the case. But in terms of the timeline of the suspension, it's still very unclear. And the next date that we'll be looking ahead to is going to be July 31st. It was a very Saints-like draft class, and I don't mean that at all as an insult. I, I, it was quietly quality i think is the best way to describe. Yeah. I mean, you brought brian Breesy. uh i i was very high on isaiah foskey i think nick salivari from old dominion the tackle is going to be a really good player i loved picking up senior bowl mvp jake hayner from fresno state even at perry from wake forest the receiver getting him late I mean, what do you what do you think of this saints rookie class I love the way you said that, quietly quality. I think that that's right there. I, I've been calling it a, a safely solid draft class. So I went with alliteration as well. Like <laughs> Both two alliteration uh, guys <laughs> right there. <laughs> but uh, so that's kind of the way that I look at it is, you know, this is a, a draft class that should have a pretty high floor uh, and can have a high ceiling. But if these guys just come in and, and at the bare minimum just meet expectation, if you get a, you know, uh, a starter – or a pair of starters into second contracts on your defensive line from Brian Brzee as well as Isaiah Foskey, that's a win. If, you know, Kendra Miller assumes the role of your starting quarterback, excuse me, starting running back sometime in the next four years, that's a big-time win. If A.T. Perry sticks on the roster for a second contract, that's a big win. If Jake Hayner is a star backup quarterback for you, he doesn't even have to be a star starter. He doesn't have to ever start a game for you. He's just got to be the sort of Chase Daniel, Luke McCown, Mark Brunel type of the past, even a Teddy Bridgewater of the past, 
um, you know, that's just a solid backup quarterback that sees the field the same way that his starting quarterback does and helps him when he comes off the field and make helps make the game better, then, you know, that's huge uh, for, for the New Orleans Saints. So I think that they are in a position here. Oh, and I, I should mention uh, Jordan Howden as well, of course, the safety out of uh, Minnesota. He's got some real opportunity to be a core special teamer for them, but could also compete in the slot. And so I think you've, you've got a lot of guys that, um, if you look at the way that the Saints went with their defense, I mean, with their with their draft class, they addressed the defense first. They went very early there. The second day was about production. You see the production from Isaiah Foskey as a pass rusher during his time at Notre Dame, all-time leader in sacks, 1,300-plus yards and 17 rushing touchdowns from Kendra Miller. And then day three was all about versatility, and you got that with every guy that they selected during that day. So I think they did a good job putting together what uh, is a solid draft class and should amount to uh, players that will hopefully be starters either for the New Orleans Saints or at least in the league uh, for quite a while. One of the best stories of the offseason, uh, Foster Moreau getting back on the field at OTAs. Just how great is that to see? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, we're talking two, you know, two months and a couple of days between when he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, when he shows up back at the Saints training facility to finish his physical, when he learns that he has a specific cell type that will allow him to be able to take um, a, a different approach than chemotherapy and radiation, and then all of a sudden he's cleared on a Tuesday, signing with a team on a Wednesday, and then the next Thursday morning at 7.30 a.m., he's out at the uh, Saints facility working with Derek Carr and some other uh, players over on the offensive side of the football. Now he's out at OTAs and everything. It's just remarkable. Um, And, look, he'll tell you from the very beginning he downplays it a lot that, you know, it's the kids that are in the children's hospital battling cancer that are the real heroes. But i got to say, you know, Foster Moreau and and the story around him is is a pretty heroic and miraculous one as well. It doesn't just, you know, that he does not, you know, that I I certainly wouldn't shortchange uh, at all. And a remarkable um, you know, situation and, and a guy that, you know, he says that there's not an ounce of concern in terms of his ability to be able to produce and be available for the 2023 season. That's a huge addition for New Orleans. Did you have a smile on your face when the Falcons took Bijan Robinson at eight? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like running backs in the first round is one thing. Running backs in the top ten is a whole other thing. We've kind of seen that go south a couple of different times. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when I look at where the Atlanta Falcons really needed the most help, you look over the defensive side, how they've done themselves some favors. They brought in Ryan Nielsen. David Onyemata follows him. Caden, Caden Ellis follows him. They bring in Calais Campbell. So they've done some good things. They brought in, uh, of course, Jesse Bates to add to the safety spot. So they've done some good things throughout free agency over on the uh, over the defensive side. But, you know, this is still a an offense that maybe could have gone after a different quarterback. Maybe they could have, instead of being one of the first teams to publicly say we're not going after Lamar Jackson, maybe could have pursued Lamar Jackson, yep. so on and so forth. There's a lot of different ways that that Atlanta Falcons team could have gotten way better, and I don't think a running back in the top ten was the way to do it. Would you call the Saints the favorites in the NFC South? And, I, I mean, I don't know how you can make an argument that they aren't. Uh, maybe if Bryce Young is really great rookie year. And would you say Dennis Allen is gone if they don't win the NFC South? I would say that um, if there is, I would say that the things are, are certainly the favorites right now, but I think you would probably put everybody at plus odds, right? There's not really a far and away favorite because there's so many question marks. If the Atlanta Falcons quarterback situation works out, then they might be a little bit more of a force to be reckoned with than we're willing to give credit for at this point in the offseason. If Bryce Young pans out quickly and immediately, then all of a sudden the Carolina Panthers can be in play, especially with that defense and with that coaching staff. Tampa Bay, I don't think we should expect much from them here in 2020. 
2023, but 2024 could be very interesting depending upon where they find themselves in the Caleb Williams, Drake May, um, you know, sweepstakes and landscape at that point. But I, I think, yeah, it's fair to say at the same to the best, the best in the division right now and should be the favorite. And, um, uh, I, I think it kind of depends upon how the season goes. It, even if the Saints don't win the NFC South, I could see a situation in which they win nine or ten games, and some, you know, some other team in the NFC South surprises and wins, you know, eleven or twelve, and maybe they don't win the NFC South there. But it's not on the face of the defense. If they have some struggles over in the offense, I think maybe Pete Carmichael is the guy with maybe yeah. the greater spotlight on him than 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 Dennis Allen is. Uh, you know, this is Dennis Allen's first year with the quarterback that he actually wanted. Remember, he, they fell back on Jameis Winston last year after going out and failing to land uh, Deshaun Watson, which may have actually worked out in their favor. I certainly believe it will. And so, uh, you know, maybe Dennis Allen gets a second year if things go the right way and it doesn't seem to be super indicative on the head coach. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, in order of the guys that are on the hottest seats, I think Pete Carmichael would be the one on the hottest. Um, Dennis Allen is, 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 you know, would be second there. And then you start to look at the other spots over on the, on the, uh, the team in the organization in a couple of years, if they're still struggling. Wrapping it up with Ross Jackson, locked on saints is Michael Thomas ever going to be Michael Thomas again? Uh, they certainly hope so, uh, and, and they're banking on it. And uh, Michael Thomas clearly believes so. Otherwise, he wouldn't have taken that incentive-laden contract. I mean, we're talking about a contract that starts at just over $6 million for a guy that was the Offensive Player of the Year just a couple of years ago, and that broke the record for the most receptions in a single season. And the guy just hasn't had any luck staying healthy. And hopefully, not only for him, but the rest of the New Orleans Saints roster, they can be a little bit healthier here in 2023 than they've proven they've been able to be over the course of the past couple of seasons. But I will say that, you know, that's a guy to where if you want to talk about a player hot seat, to where if you know, Michael Thomas goes down with another injury or doesn't produce or, or whatever it might be, if he looks anything other than some version of himself, even if it's a little bit downgraded from what we've seen for, from his early career success, uh, then, you know, he's probably looking for another team next year. And, and I think he knows that. I think the New Orleans Saints know that. Uh, as well. So what I'll say is that I, I don't know if Michael Thomas is going to be Michael Thomas again, and the Saints don't necessarily need him to be that Michael Thomas again, but if they can get 70, 80, 90 catches out of the guy, along with the production they can get from guys like Chris Olave and Rashid Shaheed, Juwan Johnson, Foss Moreau in their run game, then they're in a really, really good spot, and that could bode well for their relationship moving forward. Ross, how can everyone follow and keep up with all, all of your great content? Yeah, the Locked on Saints podcast is easy to find. You just search Locked on Saints. New episodes every single Monday through Friday on uh, YouTube, wherever you get your podcast, always free, always available. You can find the written work over at CrescentCitySports.com as well as uh, Saints.media with Saints News Networks, Sports Illustrated Fan Nation site covering the New Orleans Saints. You can find all of it all in one place on Twitter at Ross Jackson, NOLA, and OLA. Really appreciate you taking some time with us, Ross. We'll have to do this again soon. Yeah, buddy, absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Take care, stay safe, and hey, when you call, I'm here, all right? Appreciate you, buddy. I absolutely appreciate it. Thank you, Ross. Ross Jackson, Locked On Saints. We'll wrap up hour number one after this, and then we got one more hour. Final drive, 105.5 WNSP. Hey, this is Jimmy Ripple from Gator Boys, and you're listening to WNSP on 105.5. Big thanks to Ross Jackson, Locked On Saints, for hopping on. Always appreciate Ross's insight. Give us a call, 251-694-1055, when we 
are coming out of segments would be great because I am running the board and hosting at the same time. So doing the best I can to get to your calls, but do appreciate you guys commenting in the app, giving me a call, getting involved with the show in any way you can. Good Saints stuff. I have to think they're probably the favorites in that division. We'll see what happens with Bryce Young. We'll see if Atlanta can turn things around, but it's a whole lot of will sees this time of year, but Devontae Adams is in a little bit of hot. I, I don't know if I'd even call it hot water. I don't know if that's even the right way to say it. Raiders wide receiver who, if you remember, after a after a loss last season, uh, after a tough loss, he kind of shoved a, a videographer. Kind of, and, and it was bad. It, it was bad. It wasn't good. He he pretty maliciously shoved someone who was trying to do their job to the ground. They were like walking in front of him, but they're just trying to do their job. And Devonte Adams is trying to get off the field, but it was a bad situation. And Devonte Adams, I believe, if I'm remembering, he got suspended for that. I uh, certainly got a big fine. Uh, now the video, the videographer, whose name is Park Zebley, I believe, is suing Devonte Adams, alleging he feared for his life during the interaction after he was allegedly assaulted by Adams and was diagnosed with concussion-like symptoms. I believe the concussion-like symptoms part, it was a pretty brutal shove, uh, feared for his life. You know, go back and watch the video if you don't remember what I'm talking about. It's circulating Twitter right now because it's been the story of the day. But feared for his life. Man, that is a guy who is trying to get get some money out of Devontae Adams. Which, you know, you understand. <laughs> it was probably the best thing that ever happened to him. He got pushed by Devontae Adams, and now he's probably going to get a million dollars out of it. But, man. Feared for his life, he says. What an absolutely wild thing to put in that lawsuit. Chiefs and Raiders are also involved in the lawsuit. It was a bad loss for the Raiders. They, they should have won the game. It was a uh, it was back and forth Thursday night one. And, you know, as they often do against the Raiders, the Chiefs came out on top and Devontae Adams let the frustrations get the better of him. And it's probably going to cost them some money. But we'll see what happens there. Certainly a story to monitor over the coming weeks. Ryan Phillips, Tuscaloosa Patch. He was covering. He does. No one does a better job than Ryan Phillips covering this entire Darius Miles situation as well as you know Tuscaloosa news in general. Uh, so we'll talk to him on the other side of this break. One more hour. Final drive. 105.5 WNSP. From Mobile, Sports Radio 105.5 WNSP presents 99 yards away. Win this game for one another. The final drive with Corey Labounty and Michael Bronner. Do your job and play together. The final drive. Live on 105.5 FM and streaming on the Sound of Mobile app. I cannot believe it. Welcome to hour number three of the final drive on a Friday, Memorial Day weekend. Friday, one more, two hours down, one more to go. Bottom of this hour, we're going to go ahead and replay 
Corey and I's interview yesterday with CJ Mosley. If you didn't get the chance to hear it yesterday, make sure you check that out. But right now we have one of my favorite guests to have on. No one does better journalism in Tuscaloosa than Ryan Phillips of the Tuscaloosa Patch. Ryan, how are you? Thanks for taking some time. Oh, you're too, you're too kind. Thanks for having me on again. Man, anytime we get to talk to Ryan Phillips is a pleasure. So, you know, obviously I wish it were under better circumstances, but it, uh, you know, it is it is what it is there. So uh, let's just get right into it. You attended the hearing the other day uh, for Darius Miles, which obviously ended in no bond. Tuscaloosa County, by my understanding, has not given bond to someone who's charged with capital murder in 30 years or whatever the number is. Uh, so not really a surprising end result there. But I'll just ask you first, like, you know, give us a recap of the whole day for for those of us who might not have read the entire recap that you wrote. Well, yeah, that uh, it, it was one of those things that a, a lot has gone into the last couple months leading up to this. Uh, you know, without rehashing uh, all the details of the specific case, uh, you know that I think the the public narrative has changed around it outside of the courtroom. Um, so, so that's definitely raised a lot of additional questions with it. Uh, but still, you know, like you said, going into this, uh, I, I don't think there were a whole lot of surprises. Uh, you know, if I'm really going to rehash you know, what stood out to me that, you know, I wasn't expecting, uh, you know, the, the boyfriend of Jamia Harris, uh, Cedric Johnson, who's been mentioned a ton, not just by my coverage, but by, you know, coverage all over with this story, uh, was actually in court that day. I, there, I'd written extensively about, you know, different attempts uh, to serve him a subpoena to get him to testify. Uh, our district attorney's office had you know, issued a subpoena for him, too. Uh, so there was a lot of efforts to get this guy in court. And, and sure enough, on Wednesday, uh, the defense for Darius Miles turned around right before the hearing started, you know, asked if he was there, and he you know, raised his hand. They served him a subpoena right there in, in court. Um, and that was that stood out as probably the biggest surprise. Uh, you know, there was about 30 minutes at the, the beginning of the hearing where there was a lot of legal discussed, um, you know, regarding discovery evidence. This is all very, you know, it's easy for for folks who you know, might mostly cover sports to to see this as oh you know there's a lot of action going on, but but this stuff with evidence is is very. Uh, expected with a capital murder case. You know, the, the stakes are higher in this than, than any other kind of case. Uh, so there's obviously going to be a lot of effort to, to make sure that all of the evidence checks the boxes. So that was about the first half of the hearing. Um, and then the second half, you know, we got into the bond hearing for Darius. It's important to note, too, that Darius and his childhood friend Michael Davis are both charged with capital murder. But uh, Michael, is, it's been pretty widely reported, is seeking youthful offender status because he was 20 uh, at the time of the shooting. So uh, it, this was just a bond hearing for Darius. Uh, and in that last 30 minutes, because the, the whole hearing lasted about an hour, but for about the last half hour, uh, his defense attorney went over extensive. I mean, it, I think it was yeah, over half a dozen uh, different people who had submitted letters, uh, you know, different character testimony for Darius. And it, it, was, it was very compelling. Uh, you know, you had everybody from Javon Quinterly. He was in the, the courtroom uh, that day. Uh, you know, several other basketball players have spoke on his behalf. And, you know, everybody from, like, the team doctor to a former assistant district attorney in Manhattan. You know, we're speaking to his character. Uh, so there was a lot of that that, that really dominated the, uh, the second half of the hearing. Uh, the district attorney's office, I mean, they even acknowledged that it was an emotional, 
you know, a series of you know, character testimony for, for Darius. But then they, they reiterated their position. Uh, they've got a job to do. Um, you know, so they, they reiterated why he's charged with capital murder. Um, and then I think the, to tie all that together, but what really stood out to me, even though, uh, you know, Circuit Judge Daniel Pruitt denied bond at the end of it, uh, I, I didn't really see that as, as damning because, I mean, if you think about it, that is a huge decision to make. Um, sitting up on that bench, I think a lot of people, as I wrote, you know, in my last column, I think a lot of people see the robe and the power, and they think it's an easy job. No, I, I do not envy that position at all. Um, and he even, you know, one of the first time, probably the first time in my journalism career, you know, especially covering crime, that I've ever seen an attorney, you know, after something, or not an attorney, a, a judge after something like this, compliment the defense on what they did. I mean, he looked directly at Darius. And said, so, you know, you've had you've had these folks do some really extraordinary work for you. Um, you know, that being said, he still denied bond, but you know, he also speculated that yeah, you know, there could be additional evidence come out that works in his favor. Which again, it's all speculation, and I've said this at every turn that you know that it could be tomorrow that some bombshell piece of evidence comes out in this and blows the case even more wide open. Uh, so I'm I'm definitely still like cautious in you know my rush to, to judgment and all of it. But I, I definitely think the, the pendulum has swung pretty far on this one, considering where we were at you know, three months ago. Yeah. I re- uh, no, go ahead. No, no, you, you're fine. So I, I read your uh, opinion piece on Wednesday night, and I, I do want to get into that fantastic piece of journalism, by the way. But I, you said something there that uh, – that caught my attention a little bit how much of a and i was going to ask you kind of exactly this how much of a surprise it was to see cedric johnson show up in the courtroom i was gonna like was it a surprise to see cedric johnson show up and you know what was the scene like in the room when he was handed the subpoena well uh, there's a lot of decorum that goes into uh courtroom behavior uh, if you will that you know so it wasn't like everybody there wasn't a big audible gasp, or you know, there were people still kind of filing into the courtroom. But it was surprising to me because there, at every turn, and I'd even tweeted that morning that there had been no indications that he had been served ahead of the hearing. Um, so, so yeah, that, I mean, that was definitely a surprise. But I, I think that you know, if we're being fair in this, he did show up. He accepted it. Uh, you know, so maybe. That there will be more that comes out in this case. I hope there is because it's even with with his involvement in it that there are so many accusations like being thrown around. I've been really careful in my reporting to to not accuse anybody of anything until we like really know like what the facts are. Uh, I think that you know showing the timeline and showing you know what played out from what I can see, that's different than like making an accusation of guilt for one party or another. That's just trying to set a scene. Um, so that could work in his favor. Um, you know, uh, Tom will tell on that one because uh, now the, the whole thing will be actually, you know, making sure that he is in court uh, after being served. Uh, you know, uh, another few things that there's been all this talk with uh, the other group that had, had met up with him that night. Uh, Shabonte Green's one of them that he's been served subpoenas twice and hasn't appeared in court because he's been in jail. Uh, you know, he has a pretty extensive criminal record unrelated to this case. 
Uh, and then one of the other guys reportedly, which I'm still trying to work to confirm because uh, I don't have a last name, but one of the other guys in the car has since died of natural causes. So, uh, yeah, that's another witness that's gone. Um, so that was another surprise that stood out. Uh, but but it was to to see it, to see Cedric in court for the first time. What was a surprise I think, for a lot of people? Yeah, so I want to ask you about your opinion piece from Wednesday night. From Wednesday night, just talk about the entire period. You know, this has been sensationalized journalism at its finest, and uh, you know, I, I I thought you did a really phenomenal job of uh, putting that into words. Oh well, thank you. No, and I mean, you're taught in you know journalism 101 that you never want to re-victimize the victim, and I think that I was talking to somebody about that today. That I think a lot of that gets lost that there there is indeed a victim in this case a 23 year old mother's dead uh so i i think that it's easy to stick a camera in a grieving mother's face and keep asking her questions after she doesn't answer your first one um i i don't personally do that but i, I work on the print side uh so yeah i deal with words not images or video, but it it is. You see, I, I had a I took a photo of it. There's a big scrum of reporters with their 30 pound cameras, you know, just like huddled around this family as they're like trying to get on the elevator. And I, I mean, I, I like leaned over to a buddy. I was like, this makes me effing sick, like because it does. I, I I mean, to me, it's you have to to have some kind of reserve or be measured in these kind of situations instead of scrambling and pushing people out the way. Like if it means more to you to push somebody out the way and try to fight to get the very front, to get the best shot you have at that, because I, I, that's not how I operate. Um, and that's again, you know, I wrote another column probably two months ago that was very similar, like right after the prelims, because it's, it, it is, it's a circus, and I hate that for the, the families involved because there's more than one family. People, I wrote a story after meeting with uh, Darius Miles' family yesterday that, that there are a lot of people impacted in this past the folks that are mentioned in the story. And it, I, I guess it's easy for folks to lose sight of that when you're only worried about clicks and, you know, being first, things like that, but I think that's why I've, every story I've written has been forever long and probably impossible for a lot of people to read because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm leaving no stone unturned uh, to be able to get justice for everybody involved. I think that should be the end goal, and, and, and I do. I, I feel like all of the courtroom players are doing that or else I'd be the first person to criticize it. I think there's been a lot of undue criticism for everybody from the judge to the investigators, DA's office, uh, defense attorneys, doesn't matter. Like these people all have a job to do and it is not an easy one. Um, you know, but there, but there are times to hold those people accountable. Uh, I yeah. want to say that too, that, but in everything I've seen, I feel like all sides are, are doing everything they think is right to, to have justice in this case. Wrapping it up here with Ryan Phillips of the Tuscaloosa patch. Ryan, what kind of timeline could we now be looking at for, any other kind of development in this entire thing or is there really now nothing until the trial which is whenever that is 
What we're likely to have next is going to be an immunity hearing. Uh, that's where the judge will get all of the available evidence that's been entered into discovery, will consider it, and then consider if it, it is a clear-cut case of self-defense for one side or the other. Um, that's really where we're at next. But now we're, we're still oh, – we're about to enter just uh, like another longer discovery phase where everybody's trying to cross all their T's, dot all their I's, and make sure they have all of the evidence they're entitled to. Um, so that is – that's going to be a waiting game. And but, but I say all that to say a really interesting point that was brought up uh, during the hearing on Wednesday uh, was that the judge over the case commented, you know, at how expedient – you know, everything has been up to this point because we're uh, not six, not five months out from from the shooting, and we're already, you know, like the wheels are moving pretty fast, at least right now. Uh, and he credited the the defense team uh, for that uh, in in working so hard, getting their case built, getting a sound case built, you know, and then. Yeah, being able to go ahead and move forward with these hearings, because uh, you don't see that in a lot of cases. Like, we have uh, a case of a uh, Tuscaloosa police officer who was shot and killed on, in the line of duty in 2019, and the guy accused of, of murder in that case still hasn't gone to trial. Uh, so, you know, I mean, every case is different. It's not, it's not fair to compare the two uh, as being carbon copies of each other, but I, I think that does speak to like the work that's been put in on the case. Uh, and, and that can be said on both sides. I think both sides are pretty prepared. Uh, and it's been expedient. So maybe that could that could kind of be a an indication of, of the pace that we could be moving at in the future. Ryan Phillips, Tuscaloosa Patch. Ryan, how can everyone follow all your great coverage on this and any other news in Tuscaloosa? Oh, well, thanks for that. Uh, so yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at Tuscaloosa or at Tuscaloosa Patch. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, and to subscribe to our daily newsletters, you can go to tuscaloosa.patch.com. Uh, it's free seven days a week. It has everything from obituaries to local events, hard news coverage, opinion columns, all local. It just focuses on Tuscaloosa, and it doesn't cost you a dime. Appreciate your time, as always, Ryan. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. Ryan Phillips, Tuscaloosa Patch, does a phenomenal job covering this case and really, uh, really all kinds of Tuscaloosa news. You know, so give him a follow if uh, if that's something that interests you, and you know, give him a read. We're gonna play C.J. Mosley, bottom of the hour here. We'll come back for a real quick segment before we do that because C.J.'s running a bit long. But keep tuned in. Final drive, one hundred five five WNSP. Hi, this is Monty Burke, author of Saban, The Making of a Coach. You're listening to WNSP Sports Radio 105.5 FM. All right, final drive. About 40 more minutes until the Memorial Day weekend. Real quick segment here because we're going to replay C.J. Mosley from yesterday. Big thanks to Ryan Phillips from Tuscaloosa Patch. Thanks to all the coverage he does and being so gracious with his time. Always here to hop on when we ask. We'd had a good show today. Talked Celtics, talked Bama, talked Harson, had Bill Bender, Ross Jackson, Ryan Phillips, Roger Hoover. It's been a good one today. 
As I said, we'll do a short segment here just for the reason that CJ runs about 20 minutes and I want to be able to wrap up with you after that. So I'm going to go right into that. When we get back here on the other side, make sure you keep it tuned in and we'll wrap up after that. 105.5 WNSP, the final drive. Hi, my name is Sherman Williams, former running back for the University of Alabama and the Dallas Cowboys. And I wake up each morning listening to WNSP 105.5. Welcome to the Tide and Tiger Report. Corey Labounty, along with my producer, Michael Brauner, joining you this afternoon. And, of course, when you jump into the Tide and Tiger Report, none better to wear the crimson and white than our next guest here on the final drive in the Tide and Tiger Report. Pro bowler and native Mobilian C.J. Mosley joins us this afternoon. C.J., thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us this afternoon. How's everything going? Road tide, road tide. Everything's going well. How about you? I'm too blessed to be stressed. Absolutely road tide, road tide. And I, I tell you, I know that when you bleed crimson and white, you bleed crimson and white. It doesn't matter what sport it is. Of course, Alabama baseball today knocking off the Auburn Tigers out of the SEC tournament 7-4. to four. It's always good when you get that big robbery win, isn't it? Oh, it's awesome, Mom. It's a, it's a great time to brag. Like we say, it's a, it's a brag for 365 days until the next meeting. Yeah, absolutely, CJ. And I know things are quite busy for you in OTAs and in Jets country, but I want to kind of go backwards before we move forward in your time here at at Theodore High School and experiencing high school football along the Gulf Coast and playing for Eric Collier that got you ready and prepared to go ahead and take your talents to the Crimson Tide to where you were a two-time national champion there. Talk to us about what it meant to play football here locally along the Gulf Coast against some outstanding talent every Friday night. Yeah, um, you know, always big shout out to the South. Um, you know, sports in general, some of the you know, greatest athletes came out of there. But anybody can tell you, you know, football is the number one sport. So uh, football is my first love and, you know, hasn't left my heart yet. So just being able to grow up, you know, play football with, you know, some of my childhood friends from, you know, peewee football through middle school, playing against some of my friends and um, everybody through high school. You know, being able to experience, you know, experience all that and see people grow, see them go through college, and you know, you get to watch watch those guys you battle with and have relationships with, uh, you know, throughout your throughout your childhood, through high school, and watch them ball and get to college, you know, and if you've been fortunate enough to make it to the NFL, man, it's just a it's a blessing to be a part of, and obviously just a you know, obviously a best a blessing to to um, say that you know I I know a lot of a lot of players, a lot of men that that have to you know sometimes take the hard path or. Um, fight through some some circumstances, but you know, um, through throughout everything, they they made their way. CJ, you were at Alabama during what really was a golden era of of Nick Saban football, and hopefully those days aren't over, and Alabama can get back to it. But just talk about that experience for a minute. Uh, it was great. I mean, everything that that I learned from Alabama through Coach Saban, um, I've just been in college on a campus like that where you really have to manage your school and um you know for us our job as a as a football player as a student athlete 
So um, just a lot of a lot of learning lessons and um, advice, and you know, learning from the well, the vets that that I that I grew up with, going to Alabama. Uh, just being able to experience those things, experience the wins, the losses, being able to travel places that I never thought I would go as a child through football, uh, through Alabama. So I'm really just just uh, being honored and blessed to you know still be able to play this game and play it at a high level and have some, some great people that's been on my side and with my family for a long time. CJ, it's all about that family, and you're not able to do anything without family. Talk to us about what your Theodore family and your mom and, and having the opportunity to have your brother and to kind of mentor him a little bit when he came to the capstone and followed in your footsteps. Of course, I, I think that when I watched him play, he was probably a little bit better offensive player than his older brother, but I know that it was fun to see him join you for the Crimson Tide and be able to mentor him to that next level also. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah that's just funny. Uh, he, he did play some defense, but, yeah, he was a uh, quarterback while he was at Theodore. So um, his, his, that's his last, his last game as a senior. Uh, he threw the winning touchdown to, to um, Jerry Gibson, one of his best friends um, out of Theodore. And he actually he went to University of Minnesota to play ball as well. So just – just to go back and kind of, you know, go, be going through like what I was going through in college and have my experience, then it's good to come back and see my see my brother throw, uh, you know, his last touchdown to win the game as a senior, and that was a that was a special moment for me. So um, I definitely think about that a lot. So um, the Theodore community, the Theodore family, Theodore High School, Hankins Middle School, man, just so many so many great memories and friendships, um, and you know, family friends that that we met and that we grew with as we got older. CJ, when you grew up, did, did you know or hear about the name Dick Buckus? Did that mean anything to you as a football player growing up? Yeah, um, you know, Dick Buckus was, was well known as you know one of the the rough and tough uh, old school linebackers of the Chicago Bears. Um, my my mother and father uh, are from Chicago, so a lot of family ties up there. So uh, we were big on Chicago football, so I knew I knew all about the Bears and you know the Bulls. No, White Sox, Cubs, all that. I was a big Chicago fan. Now, me and my brother used to go up a lot when we were younger uh, and go visit there in the summer. So Chicago is definitely like our second home. I, I find that interesting because so many players don't know the roots of the game. And to me, you have to have that foundation. And it's interesting that your family being from Chicago, you knowing all about Dick Buckus and, and winning the Buckus Award in your time at Alabama, meaning you're the, the nation's elite linebacker, the greatest defensive player that, that was on the college football planet. And again, being the ace SEC defensive player of the year in that same year, along with earning All-American honors. People have dreams all the time, CJ. Was there ever a point in time to where at Alabama you felt that you weren't going to be able to achieve or reach your dreams? And if you did have that setback, what did it do to you to have that extra motivation to get back to where you wanted to be? Honestly, it, it never really crossed my mind. We were, you know, Coach Saban had us um, so focused, like, on the process and starting over every single year. We didn't we didn't really have time to, like, so to say, think about the future or, you know, worry about, um, you know, is my play going to get me here or am I going to get enough playing time? Because, you know, if you want to do your job and going to school and, you know, doing the right things, uh, not messing up on the field, you weren't going to play anyway. So, you know, as a freshman, um, Coach Saban taught me a a valuable lesson um, after after our Duke game, uh, we played them 
Um, it was a blowout game. Um, I was I wasn't starting yet, so I was more in a nickel package. I wasn't an every down linebacker. It was more of a third down, second and long passing type linebacker. So I wasn't really paying attention to the playbook. I was only worrying about my plays. And um, obviously, it was a blowout against Duke, so the coach put me in and in our base defense. I gave up a play because I didn't know <laughs> what in the world was going on. I was on the field, and you know, he, he he told me. Well, you know, in his in his um perfect way, he he told me like. He, that's that's not acceptable. Um, he in the next like the next couple of days at practice, he said, "I'm a coach, a senior, just like I'm a coach of freshman. I'm expect the same things." And you know, since that day, you know, I never I never stepped on the field without being prepared and knowing my job. And and that's really the life um, a life lesson. You know, if you're taking a job, interview, you know, uh, your parenting or you got business to handle. Um, if you're going there, you know, not knowing your stuff and not prepared, you know, you're gonna go out there and look silly. And, and um, embarrass, embarrass yourself in your last name. Talking to C.J. Mosley, former Theodore linebacker, former Alabama linebacker, current New York Jets. C.J., you've been a part of a Jets defense that's really been elite for a couple of years now. Obviously, complimentary football is what it takes to win games, and Jets made a Jets made a big splash this offseason, bringing in Aaron Rodgers. Just how excited are you about that? Uh, I'm very excited. Uh, more so, just the opportunity. Um, you know, I've been playing for going to my ninth year, and I, I can honestly say every year you, you want to go in with the right mindset, say you're going to win, get to the playoffs, you know, do the right things, get to the Super Bowl. But you know, that window is very small, and the opportunity is very small in the league. Um, you know, with personnel and you know, coach changes, player changes, and all those, all those um, other things, but. Um, we we do have a, a special moment, you know, these upcoming years while we have Aaron Rodgers and you know just the, the talent that we brought in, the, the way we the way we changed our, our locker room, the coaching style, just everything has just been transcending towards you know winning football and um, just been a New York Jets in 2019 and now it's been improvement every year um, with me uh, mentally, physically as a football player, just growing, learning this new defense and. And really understanding this game even more, even though I've been playing for a while, is always you know something that I feel I can work on, especially like with my passing game. So I just want to be able to, to just really unlock this defense and you know, really show my versatility on the football field as a player and as a leader. Well, a leader that comes from Alabama on the defensive side of the football in the secondary or on that second level is yourself, but you have somebody in front of you by the name of Quinnen Williams who is a beast in and of itself. And I know this guy loves to have fun. How big of a, 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 a I guess, locker room clown is Quentin Williams? And how much fun and how many jokes does he like to crack? Because to, when I've been around him, he's just hilarious, man. Yeah, uh, shout out to Quentin. Um, he's actually, uh, him and his wife about to get ready to have a, have a child. So that should be coming soon. Another Williams coming to the family. Um, but, you know, obviously with, with him off the field, you know, he's just a great person to have around. Um, just the things he's been through, the, the wisdom that he can share to the younger guys. Even though he's young, he's in the system. You know, he, he had to grow up a lot and grow up fast. And um, every year he took on that challenge, and um, every year he's been getting better. So uh, we're excited for what he has to bring to the table every single time he steps out on the field because you know, he's, he's shown over the years that he's becoming one of one of the top defensive linemen and, and unstoppable in the run and pass game. So just having him in front of me um, just brings a lot of ease because I know I can you know, move around a little bit more when I don't have linemen running up to me. C.J. Mosley, former Theodore Bobcat, former Alabama Crimson, tied All-American, and, of course, current 
star with the New York Jets defense. And the improvement is what you want to see in your squad each and every year from a competitive standpoint. I know OTAs are going on, and they're very important for the rookies and just trying to develop some early chemistry going on. How are things going on with OTAs and the New York Jets? Uh, things are going well. Uh, we just finished our first week. Um, we felt like every single day we stepped on, stepped out on the field. You know, the offensive defense has been trying to get each other better. Uh, whether it's just communicating after plays, trying to figure out, you know, what the offensive player is seeing. You know, me having small conversations with the fullback. You know, letting them know like, hey, I can't really get a beat on this on your movement. So, you know, keep working on it. So just like little things like that to build chemistry and. Know, um, make everybody better by you know with the competition. Uh, we have a lot of great young talent, so that's definitely going to help us in the long run late in the season. But it also builds you know that that competition in the film room, that competition on the field when it comes to you know trying to put the best players out there. CJ, we had Jalen Armour Davis on last week, and he was obviously there a number of years after you. But I asked him this question. I got to ask you the same. Is there a favorite memory or favorite game from your time at Alabama? Favorite game, favorite memory. Uh, I guess if I if I have to pick one, I have to have to go where it all started. I got my got my first pick six when we played against on um, Florida. You know, it was number one, number two team playing at home. You know, got the <laughs> that was a that was a crazy experience. And uh, the best part of part, best part about it is when I got to the sideline, the first person to greet me was was Mark Ingram. And at that time, you know, I was just a freshman. This is a National champion, Heisman Trophy winner, all in my face celebrating. I was like, man, this, like, this is really crazy. And, and um, got to the sideline with, with my, with some of my fellow freshmen slash roommates. And was like, bro, can, can, can you believe we just did this? So we were like, we can't wait to go out after the game. So it was just, it was a great moment, a great experience, man. But um, just playing, you know, obviously playing for Alabama, playing at that stadium, traveling wherever we went, knowing that you know we had the the faithful Crescent Tide with us. It was a it was a great time every every single time we stepped out on the field, no matter the result. How much fun is it to to watch Alabama present day? Is it you know, last year of course most Alabama fans would, would consider it a disappointing year, just losing two games in general. And I, I know that the GOAT is at the helm of the Alabama Crimson Tide, but going into this year, knowing the expectations for Alabama again, are you glued to your television every Saturday wanting to see what Alabama's going to do? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, still got family ties to Alabama, so as soon as I left – uh, for people that know my my younger brother Jamie Jamie mostly he he went to the University of Alabama so obviously every single game he was still on the team I was watching uh, now he's he's coaching at the University of Alabama so uh, it's just it's just that that wonderful family connection um, you know once you once you believe like you said once you believe, believe that bleed on red and white now it doesn't go away so um, I like watching the young players um, kind of see how the game is evolved as far as the the college aspect. I'm just seeing, you know, the talent-wise and, and every single year how we, you know, really just we have that same standard. So that's the main thing that, that I watch for, just making sure players, you know, still playing with that with that high standard, still playing, you know, with the same goals in mind, understanding that, you know, all the success that they want later in life, it doesn't happen unless, you know, they do the right things right now um, in the present day what, as far as going to school, you know, doing the right thing, staying out of trouble, 
you know, doing the right stuff on the football field and obviously competing to win championships. You know, during the offseason, Nick Saban always finds that guest speaker, whether it's Mike Tyson or Kobe Bryant coming through. Do you remember throughout your tenure there, was there a speaker that stepped on to campus that you really were locked and loaded and you'll always remember what they had to say? Yeah, uh, the, the, the last my last year there, we had Ray Lewis come speak. Uh, it was actually... I, it was, I think it was the year, his last year, right before they won the Super Bowl, or maybe the year after. But I want to say it was the year before. So um, he was my actually my favorite player growing up, favorite linebacker. So um, that was like my auto. So it was very cool to you know listen to him, actually get to meet him and see him in person. So I just remember him telling me, you know, it was, it was all about um, you know your health, you know, staying healthy, um, you know, making sure you're, you're working out. And you know, his big thing on him was you know uh, making sure you had a very strong core. So I always. <laughs> always remember when he told me that because he was saying your core your core pretty much generates your whole body all your power comes from your core and now for the people that know Ray Lewis he's a he's an aggressive guy when it comes to working out so um, that, that really stayed with me CJ got about a minute left with you I know you always have loved giving back to your community <coughs> and I know you don't have a date yet set on your camp but giving back during your camps and seeing all the kids and the young middle schoolers and high schoolers have an opportunity to learn from you and everyone who you bring in what does that mean to you uh, it, mean, it means everything um, you know we talk about the, the family the family ties on um, this you know theater allow me to host my camp at the high school uh, means a lot as well a lot of the you know the volunteers that help out are you know coaches, family members that we know, um, you know teachers that that was there when when I was there. So I mean it's, it's it's really it's really an honor because you know when you're like I was saying with the college players when you're in the moment when you're in high school, you know you're acting up and you're doing these type of things and and you know you're not treating people the right way all the time. You know never know down the road you might need a favor for them or. You know, you might need to do something in the area, and that that person's gonna remember how you how you treated them or how you treated others um, back then. So, um, now I would just credit, you know, obviously my my parents and and them holding me and my brother to a high standard when it comes to grades and I and the you know, way we acted and, and and treat people. So, you know, just for us to be able to get that back tenfold and you know host my camp and to have the community come out and people you know travel from different states is pretty amazing um i still get a little nervous <laughs> when i do the camp because you know i still when i get home i you know i just still feel like you know i'm just cj you know i, I went to theodore you know i was just a normal guy so i mean it just it just means a lot when i when i get to give back and you know people really get moved about get moved by you know the the things that we have to offer and and try to you know really let let kids and parents know that you know if you if you if your child really you know appreciates something or really wants to do something and, and your parents and you know your guardians stick by you you know anything is possible. CJ can't thank you enough for giving back not only to Theodore the city of Mobile and the youth that look up to you on a daily basis and I want to thank your mom for the assist in, in helping me out today and again wish you the best health wise going into the off season and look forward to the Jets making a lot of noise here in the AFC East this season with the new quarterback and that stingy defense that you have thank you so much CJ yeah thank you thank y'all for having me
Big thanks to CJ Mosley for hopping on with us. Big thanks to CJ Mosley's mother over at Theodore for helping us to uh, lock down a time for CJ that worked for uh, for for him to come on with us. You know that was phenomenal. Getting 19 minutes to talk to CJ Mosley is certainly not something that's going to happen every day. So you know, super cool. Really appreciated his time and being able to sit down with us. We'll see what happens with the AFC East. Obviously, CJ's been a huge part of that Jets defense now you know, since he's been a Jet in 2019. Obviously, that Jets defense has really been elite now for a couple of years, and uh, now you bring in Aaron Rodgers, and we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Uh, the AFC East is the strongest division in football, and yeah, the Jets certainly have, are throwing their hat in the rings in it. We'll see if uh, we'll see if Rodgers can. I, I don't think they can win it. I think it's probably still Buffalo's to lose. But the Jets, you know, have the longest playoff drought going in the NFL right now, and we'll see if uh, Rodgers can help help end that along with C.J. Mosley on the defense. But we'll wrap up the show here on the other side. Also, I want to play for you guys a little audio of Scotty Pippen came out that came across my timeline on Twitter today talking about why he thinks LeBron not Jordan is the go interesting stuff there so we'll uh, we'll get into that and we'll wrap up the show here on the other side give me a call during this break if you want to hop in on the last segment 2516941055 but if not we'll just go ahead and wrap up the show and get it done final drive 1055 WNSP Hi, I'm former Major League Baseball player Bernie Carbo. I listen to WNSP 105.5. Love every minute of it. Last segment of the week. Final drive, 105.5 WNSP. Appreciate all you tuning in today. Been a good show, man. I teased it a little bit before the break. I want to play this for you. We got some time here in this last thing. We got about five minutes left, so I want to play this for you. Scotty Pippen on whatever whatever podcast he was on. I'm just going to go ahead and play the audio for you. I won't even set it up. LeBron will be the greatest statistical guy to ever play the game of basketball. And there's no comparison to him. None. So... Does that make him the greatest player to ever play the game? I'll leave that out for debating because I don't believe that there's a great player because our game is a team game and one player can't do it. Like, I've seen Michael Jordan play before I came to play with the Bulls. You guys seen him play. He's a horrible player. He was horrible to play with. He was all one-on-one. He's shooting bad shots. And... All of a sudden, we become a team and we start winning. Everybody forgot who he was. A horrible player before I came to the Bulls. That's Bulls legend Scottie Pippen, one of the best, one of the best players of all time. Robin to Jordan's Batman. It's a shame those two aren't friends. It's funny, like uh, that resurfaces this week as uh, you know ESPN has been showing the Last Dance again this week the you know the jordan bulls documentary series the eight part thing and ironically too they're only showing it because they need something to show because lebron got swept 
<laughs> and so they're showing they're showing a Michael Jordan documentary or really yes it's a documentary of of the 98 Bulls and uh man a horrible player Scottie Pippen says and someone says in the app it's because Michael's son is dating Scottie's ex-wife yes you're not the first person to point that one out uh people were all over Twitter with that claim which tracks <laughs> Scotty Pippen strikes me as a guy who just holds a lot of bitterness for whatever reason. I mean, you're one of the best players of all time. Won six championships. I, I I just I I don't get it. He he doesn't. I I don't get it. I feel you know maybe maybe he's mad about some of the things Jordan said about him in the documentary. You know, calling him soft or whatever. Migraine the migraine game. There, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of layers there. It's a complicated relationship between those two. But to say like he was a horrible player, You're talking about a guy who won the Rookie of the Year and brought the Bulls to the playoffs, a team that was horrible. I mean, come on, man, a horrible player. And yeah, they changed the entire system and triangle offense once they brought Phil Jackson in. Like, it was not Michael Jordan being a ho horrible player. Yes, of course, all great players need great players around them to win. And look at LeBron, for example. I, is pot calling the kettle black? LeBron hasn't won without great players around him. LeBron had to go to Miami to win his first ring. I mean, what a what a ridiculous thing for Scottie Pippen to say. So dumb. Was a horrible player before I. It specifically said before I got there. Come on, Scottie. And I like Scottie Pippen. Why why has he got to do that? Man, he just holds a lot of bitterness. But speaking of the NBA talked about it in the opening segment we got a game six coming in miami tomorrow night 7 30 we'll see what happens boston down 3-0 now 3-2 very quickly in the blink of the eye in the blink of an eye we got a series and it didn't look like we had one celtics now nine and one in the playoffs in games they've shot over 39 percent from three while they're one and seven in games they've shot below 39% from three. Kind of uh, a simplistic way of looking at it, but make your threes, Boston, and you got a damn good chance at, at making history here and keeping Joe Mazzulla's job, although I think he's already probably done enough to keep his job. Whether that's on him or just the players starting to make shots is up for debate. But by the next time we talk to you on Tuesday, we're going to have a resolution to this series. If there's a Game 7 necessary, it's going to be Monday night. So, I, like I said, I think it's going to end in 6. I do think Miami gets it done. They're going to treat it like a Game 7, as they should. And so, I, I don't think ultimately Miami lets it get to 7. They can't, because <laughs> it's over if, if it gets to 7. But, who knows? It didn't look possible for it to get to 3-2 after after that game three beatdown. So, so who knows? Been a great show today. Appreciate you guys tuning in. 3.30, we had Bill Bender from the Sporting News. 4 o'clock, we had Roger Hoover talking some Alabama baseball. Tune in for Alabama baseball today, by the way. And, and Vanderbilt, first pitch going to be in about 30 minutes. Ross Jackson locked on Saints. Talk to Little Saints, OTAs, Ryan Phillips from the Tuscaloosa Patch. Replayed yesterday's CJ Mosley interview. Again, big thanks to CJ Mosley and his mother at Theodore. 
appreciate you guys for tuning in. Wishing everyone a very happy and safe Memorial Day weekend. And we will talk to you on Tuesday. Signing out. Final drive. 105.5 WNSP.